Welcome to Hooplecast. I'm your host, Matt, and joining me are my co-hosts... Carol. Matt. <laughs> Mel. <laughs> and we have a guest today. I'm so happy she's here, finally. You may have heard her voice when we've done our Timothy Oliphant-themed commentary tracks. <laughs> it's Claire. Yay! Hello! Yay! It's Ray. me from the UK. Claire, I was going to say, Claire, what part of Australia are you from? <laughs> I'm from Sydney, mate. <laughs> Good eye. We've established were... that Claire can't do accents. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're very happy to have you here. Thanks. You're here to talk about, well, chiefly of Angels in America, because I learned that you had seen the play, mm-hmm. which is very cool. So we're going to talk about yeah, that soon. Um, we got to talk about, uh, we're going to do our HBO News segment up front and then quickly talk about K Street since we do this podcast in chronological order. Uh, so let's just get into it. We don't want to, it's like eight o'clock where Claire lives, so we don't want to keep her too late. I've got I've been working all day and playing with kitties, so I'm sleepy. Oh, Vlad just sounds exhausting. <laughs> I had a dream last week where my cat was playing with these two other cats, and they were Aww. so cute. That was my dream. Kittens playing. <laughs> That's a great dream. Best I, dream ever. I was telling I was telling somebody at work that, and she's like, "Well, you don't have any stress in your life, do you?" <laughs> I just have dreams that I'm I'm visiting Orlando, or that I'm Doctor Sam Beckett. So, you know, those are great dreams. <laughs> Very creative. Uh, first news item is that HBO has officially renewed True Detective for a third season. Mm. Oh, did I, I heard a rumor it was um, Mahershala Ali. Yes. Right? Yes. Yay! Is that how you pronounce his name? Uh, yes, because I interviewed, I interviewed one of his co-hosts and he, he said his name. So I was like, right, remember. Well, maybe his <laughs> co-host pronounced name. it incorrectly. Maybe. I don't know. I would have said Mahershala Ali. That's, I'm just going to call how... him uh, uh, Cottonmouth. That's how I've been saying it too, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I just <laughs> sounded out. Maybe we're both wrong. <laughs> Mahershala Ali, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's how I've been saying. He'll always be that that guy from the forty four hundred. That guy that's been in everything this past year. Yeah, yeah, and got so an Oscar. Yeah, yeah he did. Exactly. Yeah, so, he's still from the forty four hundred for me too. Yeah. So I don't know, like, if he's gonna play a cop or I, I hope he plays a cop, not a like yeah, not a, cotton a ma- mouth kind of villain role. I mean, we just saw him do that in Luke Cage, so I'd like for him to be like the hero of the story. Uh, they haven't said exactly what it's going to be, except that it's going to tell a crime story in the heart of the Ozarks with a mystery that deepens over decades. It plays out in three separate time periods. And we know that David Milch of Deadwood is going to write the fourth episode. Nice. That's cool. Wow. The Ozarks. That's, that's different. Except that Netflix just had a, had a genre show called Ozark. So I don't know. Oh, oh there you go. <laughs> yeah. Kind of a coincidence. I mean, that whole area seems like ripe for kind of crime thriller. Yeah, there really hasn't been a lot story. about the Ozarks in yeah. you know mainstream stuff. Not that well. So that'll be filmed at some point and be released. Uh, I wonder who they'll team him up with. You know, because they usually have like the two characters. Yeah, I don't know. Like, the two leads. Because I'm sure I remember hearing a while back like after season one that he wanted to there was like a like they were thinking of doing a female one and it was going to be ellen page and someone so they could team him up with ellen page except he's quite tall and she's tiny so that'd be hilarious then 
Yeah, he could like carry her like Yoda in Star Wars <laughs> in a backpack. An Ellen Page backpack. Adorable. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> She's about that size. Yeah. <laughs> backpack <Please>. size. Yeah. <laughs> uh, second and final news item. I there we've been off for like a month, two months, and I would have expected there'd be a lot of news. But there really wasn't too much stuff to, to really pull from. And I didn't want to keep us here too long. So I didn't go on a deep dive of, of network news. But I thought this one would be of particular interest to Matt since he's such a fan of Band of Brothers, as am I. And me too. The Mighty Eight. It's the third miniseries in the World War II trilogy that has included Band of Brothers and the Pacific, based on Masters of the Air, America's Bomber Boys, who fought the air war against Nazi Germany by Donald Miller. And this, I'm going to read this excerpt from Publishers Weekly. Chronicles the story of the U.S. 8th Air Force. The 8th arrived in England in 1942 to engage in a new kind of warfare, unescorted high-altitude strategic bombing. In addition to destroying Germany's war-making capacity, the 8th hoped to validate its extravagant claim that air power alone would bring down the Reich and to win autonomy for the Air Force. As Miller demonstrates, the hubris of the bomber barons was misplaced, and the record of the 8th Air Force is mixed. Not only did victory require boots on the ground, but the air war became a bloody war of attrition. The 8th suffered 26,000 combat deaths, a 12.3% fatality rate, topped only by submarine crews. Drawing on exhaustive research in oral histories, diaries, and government documents, Miller even-handedly recounts the 8th's successes and failures, emphasizing the stoic heroism of the crews who flew the missions. That diverse lot included celebrities like the actors Jimmy Stewart and Clark Gable and anonymous flyers like 21-year-old Chuck Yeager. This eloquent tribute to America's bomber boys should prove popular among fans of military history. And uh, they're floating a possible budget of $500 million. Whoa. Whoa. That's insane. Wow. I was, I was, well, I guess all the plain stuff. Yeah, before yeah. you said that, I was, I was like, that's going to be expensive. Mm-hmm. Did they say how many episodes they're going to get for that $500 million? Uh, They didn't, but I think Band of Brothers and Pacific were like 10 each, maybe? Yeah. So, yeah, exciting. Um, I'm assuming it's going to be produced by Spielberg and Tom Hanks, as before. I knew a load of people that were in um, Band of Brothers, like as just extras, because they did a... When I used to work in the theatre, they did like an open casting call for like young actors, and they got a lot of British actors in it. And so a lot of the guys that I work with at the, um, you know, that were doing like front of house and were actors, um, you know, and just did front of house to kind of, you know, pay the bills, um, were in Band of Brothers. And, but they all got to like go and audition in front of Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg, which is kind of scary. I will look forward to this one. Yeah. Although I still haven't seen the Pacific. <laughs> I, I didn't really like much of the Pacific. Me no. neither. Apart from the main I titles. Think no, yeah. wasn't that into it. But uh, I'm looking forward to this. This this could be good. All right. Well, here on this uh, podcast, we uh, we go chronological, and that means we're going to talk about K Street next. Claire. Hello. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, we stole this segment from your podcast and also the Ramjack podcast. Yeah, we yep. do the 60-second plot summary. Oh, good God. And <laughs> since... Sorry, I we always forget about that every time. <laughs> I know. And uh, I volunteer to do the 60-second plot summary. Matt, if you want to get out of a stopwatch. <laughs> I'm volunteering because I apologize for making anyone watch this. <laughs> no, I mean, it was fine. Whatever. No, no it wasn't. It wasn't. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> we, we got through it. 
the the background of the show is actually more interesting than the show itself. So it'll, I think there's a couple things to talk about. Uh, I am curious about the background. Claire, did you watch any of this? Nope. I in my mind it is a as I said it's like it's very similar to Avenue Q. That's what I'm thinking in my mind. <laughs> it's uh, the like farthest from it. Avenue Q <laughs> as you can possibly get. <laughs> quasi-documentary, fictionalized interpretation of real events that happened back in the early 2000, 2003, was uh, directed by Steven Soderbergh and executive produced by George Clooney and Steven Soderbergh. About lobbyists in Washington, D.C. Uh, our favorite topic, lobbyists. Yeah. K Street referring to the the street upon which uh, all the lobby shops are in Washington, D.C. Ah, okay. So we'll just expect you to be quiet for the next... 15 to 20 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Shush. If you say anything, we will shush you. <gasps> I did watch weeks one and weeks two. So I watched two episodes and the second one is like a hundred times better than the first one. Yeah. It's still not great, but at least it had a plot and I can summarize it. I can't really summarize much of week one, but Matt, if you want to just get that stopwatch ready, yeah. I'll do the best I can. Uh, the rules, of course, uh, that I have 60 seconds to summarize as much of K Street as possible. If I go over 60 seconds, I lose. But if I go ridiculously under, let's say under 50 seconds, uh, then I'm a chump. Oh. I'm a Washington, D.C. lobbyist chump. <laughs> it would be really easy to go under on this one. You're someone who downloads all the music. Uh, yeah, there'll be some there'll be some pirated music at the end of this podcast. Yeah. All right. Are you ready? <laughs> All right. Yep, I'm ready. Three, two, one, go. All right. So uh, it's a lobby shop on K Street, run by real life uh, power couple James Carville and Mary Madeline. Uh, he's a Democratic strategist, and she's a Republican. I believe now she's a Libertarian. Uh, <laughs> it mixes God. these two real people with fictional characters played by John Slattery of Mad Men and Mary McCormick. In the first episode they are doing debate prep for howard dean because at the time this was filmed he was like a front runner for uh the presidential nomination uh but he famously screamed and then he didn't get to uh be our president <laughs> so, uh then in the second episode it's all about uh how do we land this uh the recording industry uh because kids are pirating music they're stealing they're not really stealing uh there's this whole element about the new hire at the lobby shop he sounds like christopher walken with the cadence of quentin tarantino um it turns out perhaps he doesn't really uh know anybody in the recording industry all right the end (laughs) 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 106 That was the first and second episode? Yeah. You did better oh, okay. than... Yeah, you got two episodes. It was tough. Yeah. Than, hey. Actually, because you I got mean, two episodes to, and it should have only been one episode, I think you really then only Then it would have gone way under. Exactly. I think you really only spent like 30 seconds on each one, so you're, you're a chump. Double chump. <laughs> oh, I'd rather double be a jump. loser than a chump. <laughs> Why is this yeah, a lot of editorializing? Why is, this TV, why is this TV show a thing? It was only a yeah. thing for like ten episodes. Yeah, oh, but why? But why? <laughs> uh, I don't have the answer to why. Who was the audience for this? Well, you said that there was a backstory. Oh, I mean, I could tell you how it was created, but I don't know exactly why they did it. Except that 
there's something to be said for the blending of fiction and reality and the kind of on the meta level of what lobbyists and politicians do, how they invent our our reality through their spin spinning. Mm. I I found it very like confusing to have so many actual politicians and then like a couple actors thrown in. It's like okay, what are we watching? So this is from The Observer, an article written in 2003. The show has already created news with Governor Dean's appearance, which turned into one of the weirdest political events in recent memory. In the show, former Clinton political operative James Carville, who plays James Carville on the show, a version of himself who was working for a fictional political consulting firm called Bergstrom Lowell, was giving the real-life Mr. Dean a free prep for the debate sponsored by the Congressional Black Caucus. When Mr. Dean wanted to know how to deflect criticism that Vermont's predominantly white population made him weak on racial issues, Mr. Carville pointed out that if the logic were followed, then Trent Lott would be Martin Luther King. Mr. Dean used the line in the debate, the real debate, and got big laughs, but five days later, HBO viewers got a glimpse of the source invented by Mr. Carville as part of a quasi-fictional scene in a reality television program. It was scripted reality come to fruition. Not only was the Dean scene entertaining, riveting, really, it was the exactly the kind of thing that immediately crushed the news business. Instead of reporting, K Street just fabricated reality. And something that some of your opponents have done better than you have is they come with a couple of canned lines, right? They come in, they know what they want to say. Carol Mosley Braun has this wonderful line, you know, she says, Bush became president based on the black vote. Yeah, I know, but I can't use that. You can't steal it, I know. Just be ready for that sort of tone from her. I mean, she's very good. My question to you, since you've got a lot more experience in this than I, can, I, can a pre- potential president of the United States get away with that? I think so, if you're, if you're smiling when you do it. It's the one thing you never did in Albuquerque. Smile. If you smile, it's funny. The best way to chip Bush down is this commander-in-chief, and he's got all the trappings of the office, and he spoke last night from, from the cabinet room, is, I think, with humor. And I think that chips him down to size, and it shows yeah. you, not as the angry man, but as kind of the happy warrior. If something pops into your mind in the middle of the debate, say it. Okay, trust your instincts. Mm-hmm. The same token, if, if you know, asshole consultants load you up with cute one-liners, but they don't feel right, don't say it. How can you assure our audience here that uh, your, your candidacy and your presidency will look like America and be sensitive to Americans? First of all, of course, I grew up in New York City and practiced medicine when I was learning medicine in the South Bronx. But here's the, most, here's the biggest difference between me and all the other candidates on here that are white. I'm the only white person I've ever heard talk about race in front of white audiences. I would particularly on something like that, it's one of the few times you've made a personal reference. If you're comfortable telling us more about that, that'd be great. In other words, South Bronx, you probably actually, you know, were looking up to people the rest of folks look down on in New York City as their doctor and trying mm-hmm. to help them. You get the Vermont question. Say, look, if, if the percentage of, of, of black folks in your state was determined of your, your record on civil rights, th- th- then Trent Lott would be <laughs> Martin Luther King. Okay, so this was actually being shown during the time that these events were happening yeah what? that's this was like a reality tv show kind of thing so... but it was being shown with like actors but with like real life people too yeah it was happening in the current news cycle so here's another little article for this is from the new york why Times. in the world would anybody agree to do this that's insane the idea, no, you're right. You're not, you are not wrong. Um, except that I do think that Howard Dean comes across in this is really charismatic and funny. 
which would be beneficial to his um, his appearance, his you know the, the public's perception of him. Except that the kind of people who would watch K Street would be the people like you know the affluent HBO subscribers would probably already vote for Howard Dean if he was the <clears throat> the presidential nominee. But if it's also showing, saying, oh yeah, and it gets his you know he's basically plagiarizing his test his debate prep guys that's how it works yeah. all the time like this is I know, but, this is what they're going to ask so be prepared to have this response yeah but since when do you want to advertise that that's what you do well i guess i mean usually i mean if we're going to advertise that they do that they would just have james carville go up and debate instead or something you know <laughs> yeah everybody is- wants Seem like their own guy. This is from uh, a New York Times article. The idea is to be so topical that viewers are left asking whether it's a documentary or fiction, as Mr. Soderbergh puts it. To remain on top of the news, the episodes will be outlined and shot on an extremely tight schedule. Each week's installment will be hammered out and finished in three days, beginning on the Monday before each Sunday's air date. Editing will be done on Thursday and Friday. Everyone will come on Monday having read the papers and seen the Sunday shows, Mr. Soderbergh explained during a recent interview in New York, wearing his trademark black t-shirt and black eyeglasses and sipping on a drink called an Arnold Palmer, a combination of iced tea and lemonade. He and his partners are hiring researchers to make sure the show gets its facts straight and equipping two mobile vans to rush the cast and crew to real hearings and other events in the Capitol. And uh, again, I don't know why the article feels the need to tell us what an Arnold Palmer is. Yeah, I read that article when you you, um, linked it, and... It's still the thing took me by surprise. I was like, what the hell am I watching? Is James Carvel an actor at all, or no? He's not, but he was doing a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah. I've seen him. Yeah, I thought it was an actor playing him. I didn't realize it was actually him. He's got a very distinctive look. Have you seen uh, Bill Hader's impress- impersonation of James Carvel? No. 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 Oh, well, I will put that in the Skype. Nice. <laughs> uh, I... I the most recent time I've seen him was uh, right before Trump got elected, where he it was like a little like so uh, Facebook somebody's Facebook wall was like a little video of him uh, trying to scare like young teenagers or well young uh, college people probably uh, into not voting for Trump. He's like, this is what's going to happen when Trump takes power. He's going to take the oh yeah away. he's going to do this. Then then yeah. the next thing is going to happen is this. And like, but yeah, it was like a total scare tactic thing. But I mean, he, he's probably not wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't watched it since the election, but I'm guessing that he wasn't wrong. I thought you said when he was scaring kids, it's just because he looks like he's like a ghoul. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> People always, what was the line about uh, him being uh, the best example of uh, inbreeding or something? You know? mm-hmm. Oh my God. <laughs> Was that from this? No, no, this is from something a long time ago. He's been around for a long time. He looks like the human version of Gollum. He does. (laughs) So did his wife play his wife? Yeah. Whoa, that's crazy. So she was like the Hillary Clinton sounding lady, right? (laughs) Don't tell her that. (laughs) She sounded like Hillary Clinton to me. (laughs) The interesting thing about their relationship is that he's a Democrat and she's a Republican, although now she's a Libertarian, which... Well, also, besides that, the way they, I think the way they originally met was because he was Bill Clinton's um, campaign manager and she was George Bush's 
campaign manager. That's crazy. Yeah. That's kind of fun, actually. <laughs> yeah, that's one reason they get, you know, a lot of publicity. Right. Yeah. A mixed marriage. Yeah. But he's, I always great. forget her name and stuff because he's, he's such a character and, and all that, you know, he's kind of takes over the imagination a little bit. Right. Whereas she's just pretty much comes off as an operative. I, um, yeah, like, I like liked I said, her in this, though. I, yeah. At the end of the uh, of the first episode, she meets the, the their new hire for their lobby shop. Uh not this guy is an actor playing a fictional character, Francisco right. Dupre. <laughs> right. And he sounds like Christopher Walken. Mm-hmm. There's a scene in the next episode where he's pitching a a PSA for kids about not stealing music and it's the most it's actually pretty funny. It is. Did you watch it? Yeah, we watched the two episodes. Yep. Yeah, the one about Ice Cube and the Ice Tea, and he's like, "No, no, 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 no! You have to recognize the distinction between Ice Cube and Ice Tea." <laughs> and the the lady there. I love the late the 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 woman there that's a part of this meeting, and she just progressively gets more incredulous as he keeps talking. And then when he brings in Grandmaster Flash, she's like, "I gotta go." <laughs> <laughs> I think that stealing and is stealing is, is is a wonderful sentiment for Sunday school. But these kids are not going to Sunday school. Okay, they're head banging. You know what I'm saying? They're doing E. They're 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 downloading. They're uploading. Have, I mean, can't appeal to the kids who are 20 years old because if they they don't give a shit. Look, they know that if you if you upload short of a thousand songs. No one is going to come after you. Here is a spot, Maggie. Maggie, here's a spot, okay? All right, a kid, okay? A little white kid, all right? In middle America, in small town America, is giving away CDs, ice cube CDs, out of the back of his car, okay? His trunk is open. He's giving them away. He's booming the ice cube song out of his car. These little kids are coming around. They're getting their ice cube, you know, CDs. They're putting them in their, uh, you know, flannel shirts and what have you. And then, boom, lo and behold, ice cube himself walks by. He takes the CD, looks at it, takes the kid. Kid, throws a kid in the back of the trunk, shuts the trunk, goes into the car, drives down Main Street into a cornfield, and then we get a sample of uh, Grandmaster Flash uh, and the Furious Five white right, lines. Right, right. Don't do it! 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 Okay. And then they say, What's the Ice difference? Cube is watching, and that's it. Boom. What's the difference? First of all, it's bullshit because because Ice T isn't watching. Not and, and Ice Cube, not Ice, Ice T. T. Ice fucking cube. They're not the same. Okay. Whatever. Well, all I'm saying is, listen. No, no. Listen. But wait, you have to recognize the distinction between Ice Cube and Ice T. There was some like office politics stuff happening in that that it's like it could be an office sitcom kind of thing like it yeah it sort of transcended its uh, reality that's the best part actually because it was clearly scripted between three fictional characters that that part worked because it was scripted and was probably something that was written and thought about in advance of shooting the episode whereas like the first one there's a lot of on the fly stuff and that's why it feels so loose and sloppy. Um, it looks like it was shot on DV tape or something. Kind of, like, it looks like Inland Empire, which made me hate it even more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like my notes are like, what the fuck is happening? People's talking over each other. 
Yeah, I hate that. Uh, mm-hmm. I hate it when people just argue over each other constantly. Can like, I just it just watch... makes me want to... Yeah. yeah. And I was like, can I just watch House of Cards? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. That was the first, like, six six to eight minutes of this, uh, the very first one. It was a lot of people talking over each other. Yeah, I know. It's like not a good first impression. No. I... I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven lines of notes for this. Hmm. And the last one is, what is this? <laughs> I just kind of gave up after that. My first note was, time for the show that did Carnival no favors, because this was paired with Carnival. Oh, God. That's awful. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> they truly have nothing to do with each other. Not only that, but this has such a narrow audience that you, you know, you, if you have this very expensive period drama and you're really investing a lot of money in it, you want as many eyes on it as possible. So pair it with a show that you think not only would be a good fit, like thematically, but would be popular. Put it with Sex in the City or something. Else. I don't know what else was going airing at that time. I don't know if Curb Your Enthusiasm was on the air yet, but I don't know if Carnival would be an easy show to pair, though. I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Because I mean, you could pair it with Sex and the City, but with, like with, uh, that's a, to the city a really different audience. Yeah, audience, you know. Yeah. Um, but I think people subscribe to the network, and you know, when when there's a new show on or, a, or there's a returning favorite, they subscribe, and then when that goes off the air, like Game of Thrones goes off the air for a year, you unsubscribe from the channel. So if you're if you subscribe when Sex and the City is on. Maybe someone else in the household watches Carnival because, hey, we have HBO right now. Let's watch it. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe. Yeah. Um, my second note was, did David Lynch direct the shine scene? It goes on forever. <laughs> it also sounds like fapping. <laughs> <laughs> it did. Then I have Lost Already, six minutes in, is there a plot, question mark. Uh-huh. I didn't recognize that that was Howard Dean until I looked him up. I didn't, get, I didn't know what he looked like. So, I had forgotten what he looked like. Yeah, I, so it's like, is that a I real was, governor or an actor playing the governor? And I thought exactly. maybe that was kind of the point, that actors could be statesmen and vice versa. I don't think so, but I I agree with you. I That was one of the things, a lot of people's faces were familiar to me, and I was like, wait a minute, who, who is that? And I just found it the mixture of politicians and... I don't know whether some of the lobbyists and and actors and everything all mixed together with most people playing themselves and some people not just really confusing because I as I say I kept thinking now wait a minute I I know that face from somewhere I don't know who he is and and then I would slowly dawn on me that oh wait a minute that is you know the person that they're talking about the real person they're talking about that's why i know their face and they don't they don't help us with like uh uh-uh. you know who they're talking to like who this cuz in the second one um her name is the maggie she's a fictional character she goes to talk to someone a senator house representative i don't know um in my notes i just called them politician dude about copyrighted music and i'm i feel like he's a real person and he's articulating his stance on the issue in the the context of this show. I don't know who he is. I don't recognize right. him. Um, right. And the the um, not only they'll sometimes they'll refer to somebody by a name at one point, 
and then you'll see them, and I'll be like, oh, wait a minute, that person looks familiar, and the name hadn't been familiar, and then from then on, they're referring to him as first name. It's like, okay, there's a lot of Pauls in the world. This guy looks familiar, but it seems to me like I've seen him, and now, of course, the time has gone by. It's like, it seems like I've seen him as a commentator on a news show. And so some of these guys that were politicians then have, like, moved to, you know, MSNBC or Fox News or, you know, wherever. And, you know, who were they then as opposed to who are they now? It's not good. <laughs> I think the, yeah. the debate about music in the second episode was actually still topical still download i mean think about uh it's mostly tv shows you hear about now people pirating game of thrones that kind of or people pirating movies less so with music because now we have all these other outlets to to get music like uh pandora and spotify and youtube where they put in like in between the tracks they'll put an ad in that kind of thing so people can like you almost you don't have to really download music because it's so available now online. You're not going into a Best Buy to press your CDs, as that no. one lady was saying. Well, I, I still do think by the record, too, because first of all, an MP3 file is nowhere near as good as what you're going to get on the complete, CD. Right. But Best Buy is already now in, working in conjunction with Rhapsody, a, a music site, and they just did the Rolling Stones. You can walk up now to kiosks and find music that you like it, it, while you're at Best Buy and download it and press your own CD. But you know, you said... To inside the Beltway and outside the Beltway. And inside the Beltway, there's only so much we can do legislatively. And, and I think right. that for a while the labels thought they'd be able to sort of hide behind a legislative wall of protection. Right. And we passed a digital, uh, you know, the Copyright Millennium Act, which yeah. to some degree did uh, help them. But at the same time, you know, outside the Beltway, the reality is, is the consumer wants it now, they want it easy. It's a good, probably a good thing for the environment. We don't need to make so many CDs. I still have like spindles of blank CDs and blank DVDs. Me too. <laughs> your ne- I bet your next computer you buy, unless you need one right now, uh, won't have a disk drive in it. I don't know. It sucks. It sucks. I mean, my my um, laptop I bought doesn't have one in it, uh, but I I bought it knowing it would be lighter because of it. Mm. And so I have a external one that when I want to or I need to copy files or something, plug it into USB Blu-ray drive. Um. Yeah, I liked uh, the Francisco Dupree character. Uh, he's a sleazy, uh, talks out of the side of his mouth kind of guy. I think I just think it's funny that they hire this guy and he's like playing them, and they're the people who play other people. They should they should be hip to kind of spin, but he's spinning them, and I think it's ironic. I thought they only hired him because they were told to. Well, he had that whole interview where he read from the dictionary, right? And they, but. They were told. They were called by the head of the thing and told to, you know, see this guy. And well, I think they were doing it as a favor, as a favor. But um, you know, in the, in the second one, he did you watch the second one? About I did not music? watch the second one. No. Okay, I was so, going to, but I used it used the time for Angels in America. Time better spent, I would say. <laughs> so yeah. in the, in the second one, he tells them, "Hey, I've got uh, this guy from the recording industry. Like, I know have this contact. Uh, if we can present a, a way to stem the tide of illegal downloading, and one of the things they do is they make like a PSA about uh, kids being arrested for downloading music. If we can, we can hire them as like their law firm. 
that we can go into, into, uh, into pol- the political sphere and push the recording industry's uh, agenda. We'll represent the recording industry. And I know a guy that's our into that. So they all start operating on how to, on this, um, premise that he knows a guy in the recording industry and they're going to meet him or interview or, you know, talk to the guy in the recording industry. Then Francisco Dupree comes in and says, sorry, he's not going to meet with us. And they're like, uh, the fuck? Yeah. And then James Carville says, um, he talked to Mitch Bainwall. That's the guy's name. Like, I talked to Elvis Presley. You go call Mitch Bainwall, and I bet you a dollar to a donut that he never talked to him. Uh-huh. I just got off the phone with Mitch, and he's going to have to cancel. What? Is it the weather? Why? I mean, everybody's uh, bolting. Because Congress left. Hurricane. Because they're I mean, what? Wait, 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 what? what do you mean indefinitely? What? I don't his, get it. Uh, his calendar is, um, he's going to have to postpone indefinitely. He can't do it. I'm going to have to take another call, if you excuse me. Maybe it's a, okay. Maybe it's a job interview. Maybe it's a job interview. He talked to Mitch Bainwell like I talked to Elvis Presley. You go call Mitch Bainwell, and I bet, I, I bet you a dollar to a donut. I want to say one thing here. This is very bad behavior. We are circling the wagons and shooting in. We're never going to get anywhere this way. This, this is a campaign. been here five minutes. You guys need to chill out. You need to chill out. We if we react like this on a, a, a meeting, getting he posted. Here? Why, All right, he, he I'm calling. I'm calling Mitch. I kind of like that he's a smooth talking person who is kind of out outplaying them. Does that make sense? Being yeah. them at their own game, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Kind of a poetic justice to that. Um, yeah. Let's read Harold's feedback. Matt, I'll have you read this one. Oh, doke. I'd totally forgotten that K Street ever existed. It's probably better that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I saw Matt describe it on the Facebook page as a half-hour show, I assumed it would be a sitcom about Washington lobbyists. I guess I had forgotten that you don't cover HBO comedies. So when it began, I was thinking, hey, is that James Carville? Is that Mary Madeline? Uh, I, got, I got the gimmick, but then I was surprised again at the credits when I saw Steven Soderbergh's name. As someone who likes politics in Steven Soderbergh movies, I should have been a prime demographic for the show, but I never saw it. Probably because I think politics is interesting enough and too important to to people's lives to watch fictional dramas that, in my experience, tend to trivialize things in a way that is ultimately harmful because it allows people to make sloppy generalizations instead of criti- thinking critically. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that. Hmm. <laughs> A game, uh, but uh, House of Cards is fun, guys. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Uh, as to this show, I haven't seen enough of it to give it a final verdict, but I feel like the build-up of Francisco Dupree as some sort of menacing person because he gets his shoes shined and buys nice shirts was not a good sign. I was surprised by Carvel and Madeline's acting chops. I thought she had the delivery of the episode when she had that line about Carvel maybe never being home again. <laughs> I wondered... I wonder whether the show continued to rely on them or veered off to spend more time with characters pr- played by professional actors. Personally, I tended to be more interested in the Carvel madeline d- dynamic or the debate prep than any of the fictional characters, even Roger fucking Sterling. <laughs> Was this show partially improvised? I got, I got the sense that they just put Carvel, Begala, and Dean in a room and let them go. I, say, I don't know if it, how much of it was improvised so much as... Part of it was scripted and part of it they were filming as though it was a documentary, like fly in the wall style. So they were improvising in the sense that they were just having a normal conversation, doing debate prep. And then they filmed it and put it in in between the fictional stuff. 
Uh, one little thing that bugged me was that I felt like the show didn't explain clearly enough why it was such a faux pas for Carville to help Howard Dean with debate prep. Just a line or two of dialogue about how they were only taking nonpartisan clients like the AMA would help. Oh, for the old days when the AMA was nonpartisan. Uh, and that's it. Thanks, Harold. Thank you, Harold. Yeah, there was something else going on in the first one about Carvel suspecting like a leak or something. Oh well, that I thought that was uh, actually the uh, the two women, his wife, and I mean they went around and told everybody that he was doing it, and so and then they were like, oh, every you know he was told everybody knows about this, and it's like, oh, we must have a leak. Uh, wasn't that his wife and and uh, the woman from uh, that um, U.S. Marshal show? <laughs> um, I don't and know. There's a conversation, but the char- Mary McCormick's character. Mary McCormick. Yeah, she yeah, she was talking to some guy about the de- debate prep and saying like uh, James can't help himself. Uh, it's what he does yeah. instead of fishing. Carville's prepping Dean this afternoon. Don't tell me that he's doing sort of casual favor debate prep for about an hour. I told you, I told I you, I told you, don't hook up with that guy. I know, at least you hear Mary. We love <laughs> Tell Mary. Mary not to hook up with we that guy. We love Mary, but... No, it's, uh... It's, so your firm's going to be involved we're in not. helping trying to involved. elect somebody that's no. going to undo everything we've been trying to do for the last mean? several years. Are you just being mean? I feel bad enough. Listen, it's not... It has nothing to do with the firm. James swears it's a personal... He's like... A trained seal. If you ring the bell, he runs. He's addicted. You can't, he can't help himself. We gave up on him a long time ago. It's what ago. he does instead of fishing. It's he's a. <laughs> I just listen. If it comes out, it may never come out. And with a little luck and a lot of prayers, it but won't Carver, come out. But everything but, comes out. <laughs> yeah, she. He's addicted she to went, it. Yeah, she was going around all of Washington. She had a whole list, um, and she was telling all these different Republicans and. Um, and then she was calling back to Mary to say, okay, I got this person, this person, this person. I've still got these to go. I'm going to try and catch them over here and stuff. Oh, I see. So the lobby shop hasn't been formally set up yet. So they're trying, so she's trying to like recruit clients by pretending that they're nonpartisan, but Carvel's out there doing debate prep for a Democrat. Right. Okay. All right. Sounds good. I mean, she's not pretending that they're nonpartisan. She, I think, she's trying to actually make them nonpartisan. But he's kind of undermining the story, so she's having Mary McCormick go out. Uh, they're both named Mary. Yeah. Um, Mary McCormick go out and uh, try and do damage control by letting all the Republicans know that uh, they really are nonpartisan. He's just doing this on his own. He's, you know, he's addicted. He's a rogue player. Yeah. You know, whatever. Because Carvel is effectively uh, limiting them to half the capital. Like, right. half the client base, potential client base would be alienated if he's getting so involved that he's doing debate prep with a front-runner candidate. Right. If they yeah. start being labeled as... Um, really in the camp for Howard or something like that. Yeah. Hello. Hi. 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 I'm Francisco Dupre. Hey, uh, Francisco. James Good to see you. Good to see you. Good morning. Good after. Francisco Dupre. Yes, if you were going to invent a name, you'd invent it. It's beautiful. <laughs> All right. That sounds good enough. Uh, let's rate this thing. 
<laughs> just so we can be done with that. We're only talking about this much. so that we can be like completists. So, oh, we did uh, we discussed every HBO drama, and somebody out there will will say, "Well, I bet you didn't do K Street." I'll be like, "Uh, yeah, we did." <laughs> you know that hypothetical person yep. out there. Yes. Um, we showed him or her. Yeah. Uh, I hated the first episode. I didn't understand much of it, though now talking through it, it makes more sense. I thought that the second one with the scripted parts and Francisco Dupree uh, was pretty funny, actually. And um, I I liked his character, even though he was loathsome. I still liked what they were doing with him. And I think that the music debate is still uh, relevant today. It, so it didn't seem too dated. I was worried this was going to, because it was so, like, of the time, like it was filmed the the day after the news came out and then they put it on that week it's very i was i was afraid it was gonna be so dated but it there was a timeliness to it that i appreciated so i guess i'll go four out of ten skunk hairs skunk hairdos because that woman had a skunk oh right yeah <laughs> the woman with the purse with the white house purse. Russia deville ish yeah I did, I did not notice yeah, i was in the second one. <laughs> oh, that's why okay uh, who, whoever can go next can go next. Uh, I hated this. I didn't know why we were watching or well, I, <laughs> I don't know why we were watching it. I don't know why they made it and who it was for. And it <laughs> was not enjoyable viewing. So I will give, oh, I did like it. The very last scene of the la- of the second episode revealed that this was actually, uh, a pilot for a haunted office series. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> but, uh. So for for it being an actual like backdoor shady deal uh, ghost office pilot, I'll give it one out of ten. Biaz. I wrote uh, strange woman reflected in the window. Who is that? Well, I'll never find out because I won't be watching any more of this. (laughs) Nope. You want me to go next? You sure? Oh. I don't think I hated it as bad as Matt, but I wasn't paying full attention to it while I was watching it because I knew it was going to be bad. So, um, I still like enjoyed little like the little like uh, parts of it, like that weirdo, like uh, what's his face, Francisco Dupree. <laughs> yeah, Francisco Dupree. He was weird. He was weird and creepy, but. <laughs> Yeah, like, I kind of enjoyed when he gave that girl a gift, and it was, he just did it in the weirdest, creepiest way. I was like, oh, <laughs> where is this so entertaining? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and yeah, like, that girl, too, I found her, like, she, I, I kept calling her Britney Spears because she looks like Britney Spears to me. And uh, I, I just enjoyed, like, that weird um, relationship that she had with that woman that she kept calling. I thought that was kind of interesting. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, but besides that, it was pretty, eh, yeah, whatever, it was okay. Uh, I'll give it a 3 out of 10. Uh, 3 out of 10, tighten up jock straps. That was a line okay. in the show. <laughs> tighten up your jock strap! <laughs> I thought it was gross. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Carol. Uh, um, I don't know, you asked before who who this is for. I, I kind of this figured that it was for people who were real, like, inside the Beltway um, kind of people who knew everybody. And it was just like this really, really teeny tiny audience that just was if people who covered Washington as news people or were in politics or something who would know all of these different people, which 
I'm not at all. Um, I'll give it, uh, I guess, four out of ten. I think I'm being generous. Um, legendary shoeshine guys who would get clients from other places. Cool. Well, we liked it more than hotel room, according to our did we scientific spreadsheet. Yep. Okay. All right. Let's... I don't think I did. I preferred hotel room. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, yeah, da, 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 da. Yes, you gave that a 2 out of 10, and this you gave a 1 out of 10. <laughs> there you go. Wow. <laughs> mm. Crazy. Yeah. It was from the master, David Lynch. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't know. All Maybe right. I should have given it a lower one. <laughs> <laughs> I could have, certainly. You're gonna you're gonna get all the Steven Soderbergh fans coming out of the woodwork oh, and just God. attacking you viciously. I don't think there are any, are there? <laughs> <laughs> but he's he sips on Arnold Palmer's half <laughs> half lemonade. Wait, what is an Ar- it, What is an Arnold Palmer? I, can you tell me? <laughs> it's 2003. Can you tell me what an Arnold Palmer is? <laughs> well, you see. Um, yeah. uh, what a weird little insert. Claire, thank you for your patience. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on to our, I guess our main topic of conversation this recording, which is the HBO miniseries Angels in America, which uh, premiered in December, I believe, of 2003, based on the play by Tony Kushner, directed by Mike Nichols, starring 
Starring a couple of nobodies, Al Pacino, Meryl Streep, Emma Thompson, they all get top billing, but you got Patrick Wilson in there, Mary Louise Parker, Jeffrey Wright, who was fantastic in this. Jeffrey Wright was um, the, uh, he, that was his role on Broadway as well. He played Belize on Broadway in the original play. So I think he's the only one returning to this from Broadway, from the original Broadway cast, I mean. Oh, and Justin Kirk. Oh, and Justin, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he yeah. was, he's fantastic in this. Uh, I'm going to spin the roulette wheel here. Oh. This is a six-hour play. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> you only need to recap. Well, we should we should just briefly say how much of this we all watched. One hour. Exactly. Matt was like looking at the timer, and he's like, "All right, that's enough." Well, I mean, it could, <laughs> well, I mean, it goes chapter two, and yeah, then, yeah, yeah. turn it off. <laughs> okay, I suppose. You have to uh, remind me where one hour in is because I can't even remember like where that ends. Um, I I would have been willing to watch more. We just didn't. Yeah, we just didn't. Didn't yes. get around to it. Yeah. Oh, I watched. Um, well. I saw this a few years ago. I watched this, um, all of it. And then I wanted to rewatch the entire thing again, but I ran out of time. So I watched all of part, the first part, part one, and then about an hour of part two. Okay. Um, and then I just ran out of time. I was trying to get my Skype together um, today. So I ran out of time. Last Saturday, I sat down to watch part one, and then after part one, oh, I think I'll watch the rest of, cha- uh, or um, start to watch chapter one. I'm going to watch all of part one, and then I immediately started part two. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I wanted to watch the entire thing. I wanted to see it through to the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really well, did want to do a rewatch of the whole thing, but I, uh, I it's ran long. out of time. Yeah. I just ran out yeah. of time. It's, it's very long. <laughs> Yeah, I think I've I've seen it maybe three or four times in the last ten years, like the whole thing. Um, and I uh, a couple of months ago saw the uh, Na- uh, National Theatre Live production, which is a, sc- a screening of it of it being performed live at the National Theatre, both parts. Oh, I thought you went really to cool. the theatre. No, no, but it's do you know what? It's even better than going to the theatre because it's. It's like they they screen it, they're filming it, so you're seeing the live performance. But you get close ups, and you get much better look at the actors than you would have if you were sitting in the theatre where you only have a static shot. It's much better. It's it was amazing. I actually heard it to seeing it on on stage. I may have acquired it uh, through nefarious methods. Yeah. Well, I I did want to see that, but um, it was just I did not have the money for it. Uh, yeah. The I have to. I mean, there are there are fine things about having it projected and 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 all of that good stuff because, among other things, you get to see it when mm-hmm. it's in a a place where you would not be able to get to. But um, I have to, I just have to call out for live theater and seeing it oh, yeah. live in the in the space and um, kind of as it's meant to be seen because there is an energy that's different and mm-hmm. and a give and take with the actors and everything else so but uh yeah i i saw um i've seen some things in the movie theater that were filmed for the stage you know stage productions mm-hmm. and uh it's certainly better than not being able to see it at all Mm-hmm. This was I, so good. I think because like yeah. my because my hearing's not a hundred percent as well. Mm. Sometimes in the theater, I struggle because you're in an echoey space. The sound is right. echoing around the space. Whereas this, I could hear everything. Um, it was a really good crowd. We actually saw it for quite cheap because we saw it at um, 
one of our, the colleges because I live in a university town. Oh. And it was a, a small crowd, but everyone was really into theatre. So it was uh-huh. nice. So everyone was like acting like a live audience. Yeah, it was really good. I was really impressed with, with how they did it. And as I said, like you got close ups of certain details that I wouldn't have seen otherwise because the tickets for the National Theatre are crazy. You know, you're looking at like 200 pounds. It's two parts oh. of a play. I, you know, and particularly with the, um, the big names they get in for some of these plays, like when they did Frankenstein starring Johnny Lee Miller and Benedict Cumberbatch, you just couldn't get tickets. They just go mm-hmm. like so mm-hmm. quick. Right. And right. you have to spend an absolute fortune to see it. Um, right. So I think it's great that they're doing this to, to let other people see these things that they wouldn't see otherwise. <laughs> The rest of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the cost was the reason I didn't see it originally on Broadway when it was first mm-hmm. on Broadway. Um, I very specifically remember hearing about it and even, you know, like where I was when I was trying to figure out how I could swing going to a Broadway theater two nights in a row with the prices yeah. the way they were. I couldn't afford one night, much less two. And uh, yeah, so that was... That was the reason I hadn't seen it until I saw the HBO. Well, I'm going to spin the uh, the wheel here. Sorry. <laughs> no, you guys like to uh, forget um, about the wheel. You you want to postpone it yes. and think that Damn Matt it, will forget. It didn't work, if we just keep ta- if oh. we just keep talking, Matt's going to forget about it. Yeah. Not that he's holding yeah. his phone right here in his hand, waiting to press the button. <laughs> Unless somebody wants to volunteer. About it, I had already forgotten about it. Again. Claire, volunteer. <laughs> I volunteer as tribute. I volunteer as tribute. <laughs> All right, Claire. Same no, rules I apply. I volunteer as tribute for the, the, the Hunger Games, not this. Oh, too this late. Too late. Same rules apply as other podcasts <laughs> that, that you were on. All right. You got 60 if, I, seconds. If, I lose, if I lose, do I become like, I don't know, an Al Pacino chump? Because that would be terrible. No. <laughs> Just uh, say done when you're done, and uh, I'll start the clock when you start talking. Get, okay. cl- collect yourself. Collect your thoughts. Okay. Uh, okay, so it's Angels in America Part 1, I guess we're talking about, which is Millennium Approaches. Uh, we follow a few main characters. Uh, I guess the main protagonist of the play is Pryor Walter. Uh, he is a young man um, who finds out that he uh, is being diagnosed with AIDS. He has to tell his kind of stuffy uh, Jewish boyfriend, Lewis, who uh, promptly leaves him, and it's kind of exploring their relationship after that. Meanwhile, he starts to hear voices, and there's angels involved in it. We also have Roy Cohn, real guy, played by Al Pacino here, um, absolute monster in real life. Uh, He also finds out that he's being diagnosed with AIDS, and it's how he reacts to it, because he is not a homosexual, as Al Pacino keeps yelling in this, this film. Uh, we also have Belize, who I love, and I want to steal Belize's wardrobe. Belize is everything. Belize, Belize, Belize. Uh, we also have a Mormon couple, Harper and Joe. Um, Joe is a closeted homosexual. Harper takes too much Valium. Uh, obviously, it doesn't end well. Things go from there. Um, uh, yeah, and that's it. And stuff happens. And I don't want to spoil anything for about part two or whatever. A minute and seven seconds. Pretty darn good. It's pretty good. We Claire has a tendency to run over. We <laughs> we have different standards for Claire. I chat too long. <laughs> I'm amazed I, I remembered all the characters' names. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, you did great. So it's 
October 1985 in New York City, the midst of the AIDS crisis. Uh, since I only watched yep. an hour, I must ask, does it ever time jump forward? Uh, it does uh, a few a times bit. over a few months. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where did your part end, Matt? What was the last thing you saw? Oh, God. I can't. Uh, I can tell you. It was Al Pacino basically getting diagnosed. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Okay. With liver oh, cancer. Right. Wink. Oh, I'll mention, I'll mention um, as well yeah. who was in the the National Theatre one that I saw. So, because I, uh, a lot of the people who were in the stage version, I actually thought were better than the the television version. There are some exceptions, though. Um, but the big names were uh, Roy Combs played by Nathan Lane, who was amazing, and I thought he was much better and layered than Al Pacino. It, like, the character, I think, he had this, he was really, like, ferocious like nathan lane played it but there was this vulnerability as well to the character and fear over his impending death that i never got from al pacino but he was one of the big names the other was andrew garfield and he played prior and he was really good but i i think i prefer justin kirk i i, I watched a little bit of this the same yeah. version uh and you have to send it to me i will and uh <laughs> andrew <laughs> and Andrew Garfield <laughs> played it rather what fey like he's very fey and he's very um he he felt like every the, the actor who played um uh Lewis as well every scene it felt like they were both on the verge of tears like Andrew Garfield was very I mean he's a great crier but every scene he was crying he was crying in one of the final scenes of the whole thing which I think Justin Kirk played much better um but also, yeah, I, I, just, I think, I mean, he was, he was amazing. He was incredible. Andrew Garfield's an incredible actor. I just prefer the way Justin Kirk played it. I thought it was more internalized. Yeah. And it was yeah. boiling under the surface, this pain and this hurt, and he would only let it come out every so often. It felt... Uh, and then the, oh, no, his, 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 say Justin Kirk's performance felt more restrained and, as you said, mm-hmm. internalized, and almost like... You know he's he's carrying the secret around with him and will not let anyone feel uh, get close to him and and sense that he has weakness and it also seems just like a less stereotypical portrayal. Whereas Andrew Garfield yeah. in the five minutes I saw was like this looks like a straight actor pretending to be a gay man. Well, there's a scene I don't which I don't know if these guys saw where Pryor dresses up in drag and it's kind of trying uh-huh. to cope with. Um, you know, with everything, and this is after like Lewis has left him and stuff, and it, during his hallucination, because he never, yeah, during the hallucination, him, he never with left him in part one, though he never he did never what? Left, oh no, he, he never didn't left him in part oh, so, one. Like they just talked worried, about it. Yeah, he's worried that oh. Lewis is like going to leave him. But in yeah. that scene, I I felt like Justin Kirk understood the meaning of him dressing in drag much more because obviously the character has a background in drag, and that's how him and Belize met. But the drag dressing in drag and like the drag movement and stuff is like a it's armor it's a survival technique it's a fuck you to the world and i felt like that's what justin kirk did it was him putting on his armor whereas with andrew garfield i felt like it was just him going oh i want to look pretty you know and it's mm-hmm. it didn't it didn't fit as as well so there were certain bits one of the per- people i thought was a lot better as well in the stage version was oh her name was denise goff as harper I never got Harper in the HBO series. I don't like the actress. You don't um, like Mary, her, Louise, Mary Louise Parker? Parker? Mm. No, I, I just don't like her as Harper. I just found her very whiny. I never really got what she was 
really I mean obviously she's got a right to complain in the HBO series but I just never I had never I never had any empathy for her whereas I really did in the stage version I thought she was amazing she was probably the best performer in the stage version are we supposed Um, to have empathy for her I think so I think because she's in a shitty situation it's not really her fault and I definitely have empathy for for both of them yeah I have empathy for both of them because he's being raised a, a Mormon um, why did you not like? <laughs> why are you saying like you sound like a robot right now? Are we supposed to have what empathy is, for no, you? I'm <laughs> ta- no, no, no. I'm talking about the difference between like she's Claire's kind of explaining that like the play is different, so maybe it's supposed to be this way or it's supposed to be this way. Like, are we supposed to have empathy for both of them in both versions, or is one of them playing it wrong? You know, I don't know. I I mean, in the play, I pretty much had empathy with every single character. Um. Apart from, well, Lewis is hard to empathize to because he's an art. Mm, yeah. Where were you? Out. Where? Just out, thinking. It's late. Well, I had a lot to think about. I burned dinner. Sorry. Not my dinner. My dinner was fine. Your dinner. I put it back in the oven and turned everything up as high as it could go, and I watched till it burned black. It's still hot. Very hot. Want it? You didn't have to do that. I know. It just seemed like the kind of thing a mentally deranged sex star pill-popping housewife would do. Uh-huh. So I did it. Who knows anymore what I have to do? How many pills? A bunch. Don't change the subject. I won't talk to you. No, nope. don't, don't do that. I, I, I'm i fine. Pills are not the problem. Not our problem. I want to know where you've been. I want to know what's going on. Going on with what? The job? Not the well, job. Well, I said I needed more time. Not Mr. the Cohen, job. Mr. I talked to him on the phone. He said that I had to hurry. Not- but I can't get you to talk sensibly Shut about up! what? Stick to the subject! I don't know what that is! You have something you want to ask me, ask me. Ask me. Go. I can't. I'm scared of you. I'm tired. I'm going to bed. Tell me without making me ask, please. This is crazy. I'm not... When you come through the door at night, your face is never exactly the way I remembered it. I get surprised by something mean and hard about the way you look. Even the weight of you in the bed at night, the way you breathe in your sleep, seems unfamiliar. You terrify me. I know who you are. Yes, I'm the enemy. That's easy. That doesn't change. You think you're the only one who hates sex? I do. I hate it with you. I do. I dream that you batter away at me till my joints come apart like wax and I fall into pieces. It's like a punishment. It was wrong of me to marry you. I knew you... It's a sin and it's killing us both. I can always tell when you've taken pills because it makes you red-faced and sweaty. And frankly, that's very often why I don't want to. Because... Because you aren't pretty. Not like this. I have something I want to ask. Then ask! Ask! What the hell are you... Are you a homo? (laughs) Are you? You try to walk out right now, I'll put your dinner back in the oven and turn it up so high, the whole building will fill with smoke and everyone in it will asphyxiate. So help me God, I will. Now answer the question. But what if I... Then... Tell me, please, and we'll see. No. I'm not. I don't see what difference it makes. 
I, yeah, the, um, the other name that sort of you guys might recognise is Russell Tovey, who you might recognise from the BBC One or the BBC version of Being Human. Um, and he, he was play? in... Uh, he was the werewolf. He was George the werewolf. Oh, okay. He's yeah. got very distinct ears. He's got very big ears. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. Big old um, jug ears. Good old I love him. He's an, he's an awesome actor. And I knew as soon as he was announced, I was like, oh, he's totally going to play Joe. And the reason I know is because Joe gets his butt out in Angels of America and Russell Tovey loves getting his butt out. And yep, Russell Tovey got his butt out on stage. So yeah. I knew he'd be playing Joe. But that I thought he was good as well. Um but Joe is, I think, is a bit of a harder character to like, and is the only one who doesn't sort sort of spoilers doesn't have a happy ending really compared to the other characters. Yes, yeah, okay. I like. Also, him Russell Tovey is um, obviously Russell Tovey and Nathan Lane are um, out in real life. They're gay in real life. Um, I don't know about the rest of the cast. Um, Andrew Garfield has kind of said he, I don't know what he is. Um, <laughs> But I thought that was kind of interesting that you've got those two actors as well. Um, In the roles of the two closeted characters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's kind of cool. So, yeah, (laughs) there we go. I I mean, personally, I think you are supposed to have, you know, some kind of empathy for all the characters. I mean, especially, I mean, Harper, Mm -hmm. you're not sure how much the indication is that she's always been different uh, in the Midwestern version of the word different. Um. Uh, but how much of what she's going through right now and the addiction and everything else is because she's known that there was something wrong in her marriage for a really long time and Mm -hmm. was probably figuring it was something she did or wasn't doing because that is what women are told. If there's a problem in your marriage, it's because you're screwing up. I could have sworn she said that she knew or suspected when she married him. Like, she just denied denied it. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah, I think she denied it, and then she only really gets it confirmed in the hallucination, like the threshold of revelation scene. And but it would still be easy to blame yourself. Like, is it oh, something yeah. I did, you know? Like, yeah. Is it because uh, I think blowjobs lead to pregnancy? <laughs> <laughs> hey, do you want a blowjob? I want to get pregnant. <laughs> Just yeah. follow Dr. Ruth's advice and think of the penis as an ice cream cone. It's so yeah. easy. <laughs> By the way, do you, you guys... Um, it's my rating Dr. system. Dr. Ruth has still been in the news enough for people to know who Dr. Ruth is, right? Yep. I knew who she was when I was younger, but I haven't heard her mentioned in any kind of current context in like a decade. Well, there were some you know, 1980s references that were... Some of them were fairly subtle that... I was like, okay, um, that's going to look really strange to like a to people probably now. Um, like the Hare Krishnas coming through mm-hmm. that one I've scene. Seen, I've seen Hare Krishnas here. Oh, oh we have them all the yeah, time. We, we have them in, small... in our town like every yeah. week. Yeah, oh, okay, because we they used to be everywhere in New York City, and mm-hmm. I haven't seen any Hare Krishna for a very, very long time. What did you guys but, do to them? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But in the 80s, they were, like, everywhere. And yeah. uh, and that was when I saw them kind of coming through. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, that's very New York 80s. The but uh, I didn't realize they were still around we elsewhere. We get them, like, every like we'll be walking around my town. And then it just seemed, like, distantly. And even parts of central London, you'll be walking along. And distantly, you'll just hear, ding, 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 the bells. You're like, oh, here come the Harry Krishnas. They've <laughs> got their little bells. I was going to say the best Hare Krishna scene is from Airplane. 
Oh, yes. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> was that um, Robert Stack who was beating the crap out of the Hare Krishnas? Yes. I think, I think so, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember correctly. I think the other um, big difference I wanted to mention as well between the uh, the two versions, I've se- well, the version I saw and the um, HBO one, is this: um, a lot of the scenes are played much more broad on, on stage, um, not just because it's on stage, but in terms of the comedy. Like, all the scenes with the angel are much more are much funnier um because they're played much more ridiculous like the whole thing of the book appearing and just this, this whole thing and also How the does last that work on stage it, it comes there's a little trap door that opens and a book comes out and it op- the book up falls open and flames come out the top and then it closes and then it goes down again it's just like in the in the it's HBO, like in the, but it's in a the, real uh... book on stage but the last uh one of the last scenes that takes place in heaven uh in the hbo um uh, in the HBO series, it's played very seriously, like the angels' reactions, like the thunder. Every time they mention God, there's thunder, and the angels kind of look scared. Um, but they play it up for more humour in the stage one, in that they they then you can see them tr- changing their words to try and not say God for that to then happen. It's it's much played more for humour. The what I'm angel saying. stuff and ridiculousness. I, I see the angel stuff in the miniseries always feels unnerving and frightening to me. Yeah, deeply and it's unsettling. Not on stage. Yeah, and there's very little of that, like maybe none in the first chapter. So Matt yeah. and Mel haven't really seen anything. Maybe you haven't like, seen you the hear, angel. Yeah, no. maybe you hear no, Emma Thompson's voice at one point going, "Look up" yeah. or something. Look up. Yeah. Pave I think the, way. the angel doesn't. The angel doesn't really come into play until the very end of part one, does it? Yeah, part one. That's when she appears through the ceiling. I think. Right, right near the end of part one. Yeah. Hmm. I don't remember an angel appearing through a ceiling at the end of part No, when I say, I mean, no. part one oh, is... Mean, the, yeah, because no, you've got three, three chapters in each part, oh, and God, part one what? is... Yeah, it's a six chapters. For fuck's sake. Yeah, you saw one-sixth of the... Of the yeah. That's right. so confusing how it's divided in parts and chapters. Anyways, whatever, continue. There's a lot of other scenes as well in part two that are played much more for humour, like the scene, and sorry, <laughs> only Carol and, and Matt will know what I, I mean, the scene in like the, the Mormon centre with the mm-hmm. um, diorama, yeah. uh, that's really funny on stage, because you, on stage as well you have the actors play multiple roles which you do in the, the show, but not to this extent, so the actor who plays Joe will also play the head of the Mormon family um and he plays him like a puppet it's and it's really funny um and then uh you know you have other actors um that it it makes it more obvious Uh, like other actors like for instance the actress that plays harper also plays um martin something who's one of roy Cohn's associates but obviously you can't have that in the yeah you can't really have that in the show um even though you do have have female actresses in the show playing male characters like you have Meryl Streep at the start playing the rabbi. Did you recognize oh, yeah. Matt and Mel that that was Meryl Streep? I recognized it was a woman. Yeah. I was like, yeah. why is this happening? I had no idea that was Meryl Streep. We assemble that we may collectively mourn this good and righteous woman. This woman. I did not know this woman. I cannot accurately describe her attributes, nor do justice to her dimensions. She was not a person, but a whole kind of a person. 
the ones that crossed the ocean, that brought with us to America the villages of Russia and Lithuania, and how we struggled, and how we fought for the family, for the Jewish home. Descendants of this immigrant woman, you do not grow up in America. You and your children and their children with the Goyesha names. <laughs> you do not live in America. No such place exists. Your clay is the clay of some Litvak shtetl. And your heir, the heir of the shtepis. Because she carried that old world on her back across the ocean in a boat. And she put it down on Grand Concourse Avenue. Or in Flatbush. You can never make that crossing that she made. For such great voyages in this world do not anymore exist. But every day of your lives, the miles, that voyage from that place to this one, you cross every day. You understand me? In you. That journey is... And the two other rabbis sitting on the bench behind them, I think, are Tony, Tony um, Kuchner, the playwright, and Morris Sendak, the writer of Where the Wild Things Are, if I remember. Yeah, it's really weird. It's like, oh, okay. It's just them chilling out as rabbis in the background. There's an obvious uh, strong Jewish component to this. Yeah. yeah. With uh, Lewis being uh, Jewish and feeling guilty... And as he should, because he left prior in like his weakest, most vulnerable state. Oh yeah, Which that's the problem. Prior. Is no matter what happens with 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 Lewis, the character, he's still left prior. You know, like he's. The, I I feel like that. You can't really forgive him for that. And a lot of this stuff. I mean, it it really is amazing how many of the pieces of what was going on at that time are contained in this in this mm-hmm. play. Um, yeah, people were being just dumped like mm-hmm. like garbage um, a lot. And some to the point where, I mean, I had friends who just disappeared. And yeah. and it, w- it was almost like they didn't want to wait for people to reject them. They just disappeared. And we didn't, you know, I didn't know anything about it until I got the news that they had passed away. And that they, I didn't even know they had, they were sick, um, because everybody was hiding so much. And, um, you know, it was a really bad time. Um, the, and the whole thing with get married, I mean, there were various religions where they were advising men to, um, if, you know, if you went to your local priest or, or whomever and said you thought you were gay, they would advise you to get married and, Devote yourself to your family, and it'll just go away. Which I remember my mom telling me about that, and just you know, flushing at the idea of just how unfair that was to the women involved, um, much less the men. 
Um, yeah. And, uh, and again, I had a number of friends who had, you know, small children um, and who had decided that they just couldn't live a lie anymore and had left, um, left their marriages, which it's like, okay, that could have been prevented. So, so a lot of this was, you know, in the different strata and the, the class thing going on and the hypocrisy, it just, they really do hit so many different, different pieces of history in this, all the while being very surreal. There's a Which lot of texture was. to this. Yeah. I'm not sure how much of it hangs together as a whole. Particularly mm-hmm. the angel stuff, although I like magical realism in fiction. Uh, with so much happening between Joe and Harper and their relationship and his closetedness, uh, Roy Cohn uh, being tormented by the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg, which we'll have to talk about, and then you have Pryor's sickness and Joe, uh, Lewis leaving him, and, and the, the guilt he feels in part because of what he's doing is shitty and also because he's raised as a Jewish man. There's so much going on. Like, do you need the angel stuff, prophet stuff on top of that? Or is it a I think the prophet stuff is part of the, um, the whole, one of the whole overall messages. They kind of, I don't, I like the way, and sorry, Matt and Mel, I know that you haven't seen the whole thing, so I'm really That's sorry. All right. Like the way the whole thing wraps up, I don't like the ending scene. I think it's beautifully written, but it's a bit too much like, hello, audience, here's the message of the whole thing. Um, here's what you should learn. But the whole, you know, they say later um, the message about, they say the the angels are basically saying that, that humanity should just stop um, and stop moving forward um to survive and it's the whole thing of you can't just stop you have to keep moving and i think that ties in with humanity you know we are we we are unable to just stop if we just stopped then um if we never explored or wanted to invent things you know a lot of bad things wouldn't have happened but we never would have got we never would be having this skype call you know we never would even be talking about this this hbo thing because there would be no television we never would have invented things um we never would have found like distant lands and stuff. Humanity can't stop because we are by nature curious animals, but it's also, I think commenting on um, like Pryor's illness as well of saying, you can't just stop. You have to kind of go on and you have to live your life and don't let it be a death sentence in so many words. I didn't put that very eloquently, but I hope you kind of get what I mean. And maybe in terms of like Harper as well, there's so many, like, um, they're portending so much doomsday. Oh, by the way, happy uh, Doomsday Day, everyone. We're Yay! recording this on the day that that planet that NASA says doesn't exist is going to crash into us or something. Oh, so, what? Melan- uh, Melancholia, like the movie. Yeah, pretty much. P- planet X or something. Uh, <laughs> That's ridiculous. Mel, what's that in the sky? Yeah, all the doom and written, like, Oh, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, all the doom and gloom was kind of quaint. Obviously, these people yeah. are living in 2017. <laughs> <laughs> but every generation, well, I think, feels the it. They, the millennium. Yeah. They, I mean, they feel like it's it's the end. I mean, we're getting news reports weekly about North Korea launching missiles and, and so yeah. forth. It feels like uh, any Donald second. Trump calling, calling um, you know, him Rocket Man, and you're like, do, do you want nuclear war, Donald Trump? Do you? People, people don't. <laughs> they're going to... They're gonna, throw a nuke into the ocean do you want kaiju that's how you get kaiju <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh 
Yeah, like nobody even talks about the ozone anymore. And in fact, I thought I heard it was repairing itself. The, the, yeah, they banned CFCs. It's, it's the yeah. souls, Matt. It's the souls. That's <laughs> what they say in this. In this, the souls are repairing the ozone. Yes. <laughs> the thing is, Matt, that for various people, it was doomsday. Yeah. I mean, for the people in this play, yeah, it was doomsday. I but mean, also there's the fear of the millennium because. Right. You know, it was it was the millennium. Like the first part is called Millennium Approaches, right. and it was like the end of the century, and it had been a really shitty century because I mean it was it was yeah. awful the twentieth yeah. century. So many horrible things happened, mm-hmm. and it was this you know like like remember like the whole Y two K thing as well. I mean that was just a small thing that you know just before it was like oh planes are going to fall out of the sky you know and obviously let it happen. Let me make the argument, though, that the world has always built, been awful and always will be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love you, Mel. You're absolutely right. The world has always been awful. Yeah, it's and, just that we tend, because yeah. we, we're living it, we tend to be dramatic about it. <laughs> yeah. but, but the thing is that, again, I'm going to go back and state the obvious. For gay men... At yeah. that particular time, everybody was dying. Yes. Oh, and yeah. I'm not and, kidding. And it wasn't yeah. even being acknowledged by... It was not being... Yeah, it was being ignored. It was being... There were people on television saying, good. Yeah. These yeah, people deserve it. I didn't say that to minimize, like, no. gay men's, like... No, <laughs> no, when, no, I wrote, experience. when I wrote... <laughs> when I wrote that note, it was because of Harper freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. no, I, I, no, but I, I seriously do think that, like, it's just something that people are like, oh, like, people are like, oh, like, the world today, like, oh, it's oh, so awful, and I'm like, you know, we have it better than, like, a thousand years ago, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> like we have better medical, like, care, we have better everything, so. In Canada, maybe. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Oh, and the UK. Oh, we have, no, we have excellent <laughs> medical care, it's just you can't afford it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like people aren't like like uh, slicing your foot to like bleed you out so that you, they can like get your humors to come back to. <laughs> mm-hmm. back so here's here's you know an example I mean? of, like, of yeah we know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> you, you dug yourself a hole. We gave you a minute to c- climb out of it. <laughs> you are officially pardoned. Okay, so I found an article actually on Jezebel. It was published this just this last Thursday. It's such a great timing. Uh, it, the name of the article is "The Slutty Resurgence of New York's Underground Gay Sex Parties," Hooray! and I'm gonna read read from this article just this paragraph here. Uh, in 2014, in New York, writer Tim Murphy examined how PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, an ant- an antiretroviral medication regi- regime <clears throat> that prevents negative people from contracting HIV up to 99% was causing a cultural sea change amongst gay men. Murphy titled his piece, Sex Without Fear. And at the sex parties I visited over the past few months, the title has held up. I haven't seen much to suggest that AIDS-related fear dictates many urban gay men's sex lives. In addition to PrEP, treatment as prevention, or TASP, is now available. TASP, 
is the administration of antiretrovirals to HIV positive people, suppressing mm-hmm. viral loads to the extent that the HIV in patient's blood is considered undetectable by standard testing and is virtually impossible to transmit to sex partners. A recent study of 350 gay male couples in which one partner was HIV negative and one was HIV positive, but on viral suppression medication, found zero instance of exposure over the course of more than 17,000 condomless sex acts. Wow. Well, that's good news. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, 350 couples, 17,000 sex acts. What's the math on that? <laughs> I don't want to. Oh, only 48 times. That's once per week. That's okay. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's not bad. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, uh, civilization didn't stop uh, moving. They didn't heed that angel's advice, and uh, they went on to develop the suppressants for this mm-hmm. awful disease. Exactly. Um. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know what I was going to say then. You want to read this article, by the way. It's a uh, crazy <laughs> time. Yeah, it was... Yeah. I really... I did really enjoy watching this, though. Like, uh, I love... I love the characters. Like, they're so... Um, I guess, fully fleshed out, I guess. I like that. Like, I like that they're... They're so, like, relatable. Even though I've never been through an experience like that, you can really put yourself in their shoes and, like, really... Yeah, I really I, feel for them, mm-hmm. you know. At like we watched the K Street thing, whatever. First, yeah. and then I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah. And then I was just was not in the mood to watch anything else, but we had to watch this. And then I was like, the, like the credits started with like flying through the clouds and stuff, and I'm like, can't we just be watching Highway to Heaven instead? <laughs> <laughs> nice. But I, I I assumed this was not going to be good, but it was good. Yeah, uh, I enjoyed the hour it. We watched, and then yeah. Yeah, I, I would have watched more. Yeah, but that was a that was a neat opening with the like zoom right in like from like uh, Google Map view basically down mm-hmm. to uh, that statue. Mm. My favorite Where... place in New York as well. Not just yes. because it's of Pryor's this, favorite place, well. also. Yeah, I know, which is why I was like, yay! But I, and also, this is the place where I saw them filming Jessica Jones, so that's awesome. Uh, but yeah, it's my favorite place in New York. I love like sitting under the terrace. Now you must have you must have liked when the angel turned to the camera. Now it didn't wink, but you could probably imagine that it did. I, in my mind, in in my heart, in my spirit and soul, it winked. (laughs) (laughs) This is is a. This place. Is, it's a great opening. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You find out later that heaven looks like San Francisco. Which it should, because I love San Francisco as well. See, this is maybe why I really liked it this is the first time I watched, because I was like, well, the main character's favorite place in the world is my one of my favorite places, and heaven looks like one of my favorite cities. Actually, it's and a heaven, mix, it's, it's a mix a of San Francisco garden, and Italy. Like he says. Well, he says later, he's like, he's happy that heaven isn't a garden. I was like, hell yeah. I was like, if I believed that there was a heaven, I'd be really pissed if it was a garden. I want it to be a city. <laughs> now, in part two, when Pryor does ascend the ladder and goes to heaven, they filmed the heaven scenes in Italy at a place called mm-hmm. Hadrian's Villa. I just put the link to photos of it in Skype. It is a gorgeous place. I'd love to visit there. I'd love cool. to visit that place. Uh, yeah. And then you see San Francisco like in the background. So it's a little... A little strange. They go to San Francisco uh, in the opening. They fly over the Golden Gate, uh, heavily uh, ensconced in fog. Uh, then we see the St. Louis Arch. I think that's strange. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure how St. Louis plays into... Uh, there's a character named Lewis. I think it's 
that they're flying, over, like, they're flying across yeah. the country. And yeah. I assume yeah. that what they were trying to say was that this is, they were kind of subliminally saying, this is a problem all over the country, but we are going to, yeah. we are coming to New York. Yeah, yeah. This is a countrywide. And then we land in uh, Central Park and uh, the Bethesda fountain and there's a line i think it's in part two where prior says that the angel bethesda lands on the ground and then where she her foot touches the ground a fountain springs up then anyone who steps in the fountain is uh cured of their illnesses and uh Mm -hmm. that uh joe's mom's gonna take him there or something like that yeah joe's mom hannah says she will take you know, at the end of days or whatever it is she believes, then when the fountain springs up, then she will personally take prior there to be healed. And we'll have to talk about uh, his mother, Hannah, uh, in a little bit. She's not in part one, sadly. So uh, Matt and Mel didn't get to meet her. She's probably my favorite character in the entire... She's awesome. ...in the entire thing. I just... She's like this steely old bag. I fucking love her. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Mel Streep. But she's great when she uh, encounters the homeless woman on the street and she says, like, I'm sorry you're psychotic, but make an effort. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I like the, the woman who plays the, the homeless woman as well as the one who plays the angel, the main angel. Mm-hmm. Um, Emma Thompson. And she's also the, yeah, Emma Thompson. And she's also the, the nurse. Sorry, I was thinking of the play then in my head. She's I also the nurse. And I like the shot where you have the nurse leaning over prior and he looks at her and it looks like she has a halo of light. Because it's mm-hmm. like the other thing is like the angels of America are the angels are like the nurses. That's why you have like Belize as well as an angel at the end. You know, they're the people, the carers who are looking after these people who are sick. Um, so they are also like the angels. So it's kind of a play on, you know, two plays on the word. So I do wish Emma Thompson had picked some other accent to try and do. Oh, that her accent yeah. is so distracting. Oh, it's very distracting. That's unfortunate. It's a terrible yeah. job. Yeah. And she's usually so, so good at everything she does. Well, I didn't like her in the Harry Potter movie, but um, she's, you know, she's so good. And and uh, that accent just really... Yeah. Ooh. I think she was trying to be butch as possible, and yeah. she associated that with a New York, you know, butch woman or something. And no, <laughs> no, mm. yeah. no. That was sad, but... <laughs> it was an unfortunate uh, Yes, that was mistake. a very unfortunate Bad decision. Bad decision. This is, yeah. a, this is a tangent, but uh, did you guys hear the um, statement that David Lynch made about uh, why they didn't use David Bowie's voice in the new Twin Peaks? This no. is ac- This is accent-related. <laughs> it was All because, right. like, he gave See. them permission to use his, uh, his image, but not his voice, because he was ashamed of his Louisiana accent that he attempted and failed at. <laughs> so he's like well, yeah, whoever they got to do the accent in the return was just as bad yeah they were trying to match it i'm sure I, but i didn't even yeah. realize though that uh philip jeffries was from louisiana yeah that's that's the funny part is <laughs> that was louisiana yeah, yeah okay. it, was, it was bad anyway. <laughs> from everything i've heard that's like one of the toughest accents to get right yeah likely Oh, David Bowie could have played Gambit in an X-Men movie. He's from Louisiana. <laughs> when am I getting my X-Men, or my Gambit movie? I was supposed to have that, like, two years ago. Uh, I don't know. For those of you who are into Marvel, that I believe uh, the Avengers dispersed in the original Avengers movie uh, from that same fountain. Oh, they did, yeah, from the at the top, didn't they? Yeah, they did. Like, parked up the top. 
It's a oh. very popular fountain. <laughs> yeah, it's in everything. Like, they, they've yeah. already used it twice in the Defe- the Defenders shows. They used it in Iron Fist and Yeah, I was going to say, isn't it's that scene in... Bakudo. Yeah, in the... What's raining and... Um, yeah. who's What's her name? Um, Colleen. Colleen is, is fighting Bakudo, aren't they? And the rain is kind of coming off of that... It looks like kind of like an overhang. And there's sort of a, yeah. that dry area. Yeah, they probably and, had that, like a little that, shower that, thing. <laughs> That that appears in uh, Angels in America too. I think in the that's by the fountain. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, they go on. It looks like a very well. familiar familiar place, a familiar setting. So I, yeah. I don't remember in part two. Sorry, Mel and Mel, but um, I Mel don't. Mel, Matt and Mel, uh, Matt and Mel, Matt and Mel, Eminem. <laughs> um, M&M. um, I'm sorry, I about the. I don't remember in part two when they go back to the fountain. I don't really have a. Or when he goes to the fountain, I don't really have a picture in my head of what that looked like. Were did they have people there um, at the time? Did they have the activity kind of activity that no, you? Should- I think no, I no. They, I think they do earlier it's when there's winter. the scene between Lewis and Belize, and they're discussing. I think there are some people there, but it is raining and stuff. But yeah, mm-hmm. the final scene, they don't have anyone else there. It's just them. Okay. Every time I think of that place, I always just have like people doing skating and tricks and mm-hmm. performances and everything there people are always yeah. doing like weird stuff in that that whole area the steps coming down and stuff. but anyway here i'll put a, a little photo of it in the in the skype sorry listeners it's beautiful that place it is it's, well most of central park really is beautiful the ramble <laughs> where yeah the, guy, the guys used to hang out, uh, go cruising and stuff. It's a really, really nice area. Um, mm-hmm. You can get a little, it can be a little, like, make you nervous because, you know, when you're in Manhattan and you suddenly find yourself alone in a place like the Ramble, it's it's a little disconcerting, let's put it that way, because you're just not used to being, um, being alone in Manhattan is kind of vulnerable, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's not many places in Manhattan where you really are alone at any point if you're outside. So, um, I mean, being alone outside is horrible. But, uh, yeah, the Ramble, um, it was was a big cruising place back back then. I don't know whether... I think that's where they have the cruising scene, don't they, in yeah. the, the show, when mm-hmm. yeah. he, he picks up the guy who is played mm-hmm. by Justin Kirk as well. Right. The Leatherman yeah. is credited the as... The Leatherman, yeah. You know, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, they use it every time they're... Uh, um, they use it also when Lewis and Joe first mm-hmm. um, start getting serious about talking about sex and such. Yeah. Um, they're also in the ramble. The, uh, this is probably a stupid question, but uh, what's, what's Lewis's um, partner's name there? Prior? Prior. Prior? Okay. What? Yeah, I don't think they disease? say Prior's name until, like, way into it. Yeah. Yeah. I also don't know what disease he had, because he kept saying, he kept calling kept it KS. KS. Yeah, and I was like, I've never heard of it. AIDS call. And I, knew, I was like, this, he's got to have AIDS, because he has the lesions. Yeah, I mean, but then why like isn't Lewis just... worried about having AIDS? Yeah. It wasn't... So is it AIDS? I assumed it is. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, why did... Calling it KS, like, what and is why it? isn't Lewis worried about himself? Uh, 
I think the wording's slightly different in the play because I think when he says KS, then he then says like kiss of death, and he's like shows the lesion. So I think I guess it's like I don't know. Like I always assumed it was like KO, like <laughs> in in a game, you know, like knock the out. final blows. Yeah, like knock out, like final blow, but it meant kill. I don't know. Hmm. There were a lot of different names being thrown around. So was it um, kind of like uh, to kind of like keep it on the down low? Like, oh, I've got KS, <laughs> that kind of thing, or I've got liver uh, cancer. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I don't think Pryor was. Part, so. I don't think Pryor was playing those games. I think he was. Mm-hmm. He was doing other stuff. Okay. Um, yeah. You're in a pissy mood. Cat's still missing. Not a furball in sight. It's your fault. It is. I warned you, Lewis. Names are important. Call an animal Little Sheba. You can't expect it to stick around. Besides, that's a dog's name. I wanted a dog in the first place, not a cat. He sprayed my books. He was a female cat. Cats are stupid, high-strung predators. Babylonians sealed them up in bricks. Dogs have brains. Cats have intuition. A sharp dog is as smart as a really dull two-year-old child. Cats know when something's wrong. Only if you stop feeding them. They know. That's why Sheba left. She knew. Knew what? I did my best Shirley Booth this morning. Floppy slippers, house coat, curlers, <laughs> cantaloupe friskies... Come back, Toshiba. Come back. To no avail. Le chat, elle ne reviendra jamais, jamais. See? That's just a burst blood vessel. Not according to the best medical authorities. As for Lewis, I would assume after he learns that prior is sick, they don't have sex. Yeah. Yeah, but, but then if he has it, he's, it's probably too late. I don't know. Unless they haven't seen each other in quite a while. He... Well, are they living together for four years? Do they fully understand how it's transmitted at this point? Well, you know, I'm wondering, yeah, I don't know, and I don't know, I'm wondering, like, if they do know that it's transmitted a certain way, then maybe they're having sex in other ways. Do you know what I mean? Like... Uh-huh. No. I... Describe those ways. Yeah, okay. Well, he was talking about it, like he talked about specifically like performing fellatio and I was like, okay, well maybe that's all they're doing right now. Okay, it's mm. Can, well, um, yeah, much harder though to contract AIDS, AIDS that way, I yeah. think. I think they did know, well, the doctor knows cuz he says it to Roy Cohn. He says you've had sex with a lot of men and one of those men has given you made you very very sick or something. Yeah. Yeah, they they weren't I I'm not sure they had it down specifically as to what was safe and what was not safe. Um, they more were, okay, it's transmitted sexually and, you know, whether... Because there was a lot of stuff about saliva there for a while. It can't be transmitted by saliva. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of misinformation about that kind of stuff at the time. Um, yeah, it... And it depends on who you were talking to, too. Okay, here we go. Kaposi's sarcoma, KS, is a type of cancer that people with AIDS often get. That's I thought that's what we were talking about was because there's like a bunch of signal illnesses. Yeah. That if you get one of those illnesses, if you have not been tested for AIDS, it kind of signals. It got to the point where it would signal that oh, you have AIDS. 
because mm-hmm. people don't get that kind of cancer without having mm. AIDS. That might be clear when we were talking about uh, that Quantum Leap episode and that one actor who played Willis. I brought up that he died at like age 28, and the only thing I could see uh, find online that would show the cause of death said AIDS slash cancer. Mm-hmm. So it's probably that. Yeah. 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 Mm. And that was and- in like nine. That was like early '90s or late '80s. That show. Mm-hmm. When was that? Yeah, yeah. When was Quantum Leap season three? <laughs> Whatever that was. I I don't know. <laughs> Except the kid would have been a little bit older then. I think he died in like '92 or so. So yeah. In any way, in any case. All I can think of now is the uh, Conan O'Brien Walker Texas Ranger uh, lever. Oh, God. <laughs> I don't know if you guys ever saw that. The Walker Texas Ranger episode where Walker tells a kid that he has AIDS. <laughs> oh, God. It's funny. Well, the Mr. Belvedere okay. episode with the little kids. Because the kid, it's like Haley Joel Osment. Like like a really young Haley Joel Osment. And then he turns to a, an other adult and he says, he says to them... Walker says I have AIDS. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Chuck Norris broke to this kid that he has AIDS. Anyways, <laughs> wow. what Chuck Norris does? <laughs> yeah, just the acting. Quantum is- Leap, by the way, was eighty nine to ninety three. Yeah, so this is around probably ninety one. And then he died in like ninety two. So he was, I think he was wow. ninety two. So yeah, he didn't live too much longer after that episode. Yes. I have to say my my favorite line in this entire series or play is when Harper and Pryor are sharing that vision hallucination dream mm-hmm. and she has it's she calls it the threshold of revelation that sometimes there you you sense certain things mm-hmm. and she leans um, close to him and whispers deep inside you there's a part of you the most inner part entirely free of disease yeah that line <laughs> oh this is the most depressing hallucination I ever had Apologies, I do try to be amusing. Oh, well, don't apologize. You... I can't expect someone who's really sick to entertain me. How on earth did you know? Oh, that happens. This is the very threshold of revelation sometimes. You can see things. How sick you are. Do you see anything about me? Yes. What? You are amazingly unhappy. Oh, big deal. You meet a Valium addict, you figure out she's unhappy? That doesn't count. Of course, something else, something surprising. Something surprising? Yes. Your husband's a homo. Oh, ridiculous. Really? (laughs) Threshold revelation. Well, I don't like your revelations. I don't think you intuit well at all. Joe's a very normal man. He... Oh, God. Oh, God. He... Do homos take, like, lots of long walks? Yes, we do. In stretch pants with lavender quaffs. I just looked at you, and there was... A sort of blue streak of recognition. Yes. Like, you knew me incredibly well. Yes. Yes. I have to go now. Get back. Something just... fell apart. Oh, God. I feel so sad. I... I'm sorry. I usually say, fuck the truth. 
But mostly the truth fucks you. I see something else about you. Oh. Deep inside you, there's a part of you, the most inner part. Entirely free of disease. I can see that. Is that... That isn't true. Threshold of revelation. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that bit. And that line, even hearing you saying it, it really gets to me every time. Because I think part of the thing that gets to me in... Like, if I see anything where it's someone, like, and they're they're dealing with, like, a disease and stuff, obviously it's not the same, but I, I've had, like, depression anxiety since I was a kid, which can kill you, can cause death. Um, in, in, you know, it's, you know, when there's a lot of, like, it's the whole thing of, like, you know, Robin Williams didn't die of suicide, he died of depression, um, and that's what caused him to do that. And it's something, you know, that I've had to kind of deal with my entire life pretty much and, you know, and still struggle with and I have to do certain things. And whenever, like, I hear that line, that does kind of get to me because it does feel like some days. And I imagine when you've got any kind of any condition, you do feel like that's making up your entirety. But obviously it's not your entirety. You're not just defined by your illness. So I think that line is kind of amazing sorry yeah, yeah no. it's so that, it's so compassionate that when mm-hmm. she says that and optimistic Does that actually have any sort of like uh impact down the line in the story past part one like is it represent it, something that happens later set, it, not really it sets up like the bond between um prior and harper though because they meet in real in reality and that kind of i guess sort of sets up the friendship between him and Joe's mother because at yeah. that point Joe's mother is with Harper and that's kind of becomes important. Mm-hmm. I really want to keep watching this now. <laughs> I, I really I really think you should cuz yeah, really especially to. like I, I really liked it. Yeah. The I think the end of the second part or second chapter rather uh there's this really emotional like scene between a couple of things are happening. You have Harper and Joe Go the quartet. Yes. It's amazing. They have this just emotional, uh, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's, it's fantastic. And and then Lewis and Pryor are also arguing and just like the emotion that comes off, like the heat that comes off of these actors is incredible. Seeing that on stage as well, while both conversations are going on and they're overlapping and they're physically overlapping on stage is amazing as well because there's things being thrown out that could apply to not like Harper's throwing things at Joe that don't just relate to Joe. They relate to Lewis as well, that Pry could easily be saying to Lewis, you know, it's so, it's such a great scene. Hmm. And you also don't get to meet uh, Hannah. What's her, what's her last name? What's Joe's last name? Pitt. Oh yeah. Pitt. Hannah Pitt. Yeah. Mother Pitt. Yeah. You Ma- don't get to meet her until she, she comes from Salt Lake city. Uh, and that's, She's just so much fun. Um, initially, though, that phone call, Joe makes a drunken phone call. And don't forget, he's Mormon. Oh, yeah. But he calls from, like, Central Park or something. Uh, and he's drunk. And he calls his mother. And it's 4 a.m. And she's like, what happened? He's like, mother, I'm a homosexual. And she's like, you're being ridiculous. I- I'm going to bed. Good night. <laughs> no, she yeah. says, because first of all, he says, did my, fa- did my father love me? And right. she doesn't answer. And then he says, I- mother, I'm a homosexual. And then she's like, would I be silly? 
of course your father didn't love you or something like that. And it's like, <laughs> holy shit. It's yeah, so I mean, she awful. Actually, she actually, the way she, the line goes was, I thought was really interesting because it connects him saying he's homosexual to, or she's connecting him saying he's homosexual to him uh, deep down inside knowing his father didn't love him. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. yeah, because she says something like, um, oh, don't, stop being ridiculous. Uh, mm -hmm. You're a grown man. Just because your father didn't love you doesn't mean that, mm -hmm. you know, something. And then she connects mm -hmm. the homosexuality with it. And it was yeah. just like, oh, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> that's like one of the worst things you can possibly hear if you come out to someone. Because coming out is stressful. And then you hear, first of all, she's not really taking it on board that you're, you're coming out. And then secondly, oh, yeah, and your dad didn't love you. It's like, holy shit. When I, when I came out, the first thing my mum said to me, I came out to my mum and dad, first thing my mum said to me was, does that mean I'm not going to be a grandmother? So laying on the guilt on me, thanks mum. And then the second thing she said was, I'm fine with it, but don't tell your grandma. Okay, so you're not fine with it, are you? So I was like, thanks mum, that's like the worst response you could have given me. Thanks. It reminds. It just, it just. I just find it funny when people say, "Oh, nowadays it's a lot easier for people to come out." I'm like, "Yeah, sure, it's easier, but it's still really hard. Like oh, that's gonna awful. be really hard because you're you're putting yourself mm -hmm. out there. It's something that's really private, and you're putting it out there, and you're telling people this. Like you know, that's that's a part of you that's, you know, you don't feel like you should have to share, but you'd have to yeah. because you know i think one yeah. of the, the, the big things like with with coming out because i we recently had someone come out in my family in a in a shocking way in that she has been married to her childhood sweetheart for years they have two grown kids oh, wow. and then all of a sudden she ran off with her um female boss and has gone to live with her the other side of the country and it's like holy shit so i was yeah. talking and um that side of my family are very kind of prim and proper and you know, don't, there's no scandals and all this kind of thing. And they like just didn't know how to deal with it. So I was speaking to this woman's mum about it. Yeah. And we got onto the topic of like, of this and, you know, and why didn't she come out and all this kind of thing. And, you know, and I, we were kind of chatting about it. And one, I read a, a book years ago that was really interesting, which says that coming out, dealing with someone coming out, even if you're perfectly happy about it, first of all, you've got to come out to yourself. And that's one of the hardest things. And then you've got to come out to other people. But both parts are you're dealing with a process of grief. And it is the same emotions as as grieving because you're, you know, whether you like it or not, most of the time your parents have an idea of how your life is going to be yes. or you have an idea of how your life is going to be. And then you're realizing that that life is not going to be the way you anticipated. And that's exciting. But then you are grieving because... I mean, even before I came out as, as bisexual to my mum, I, I told her I wasn't going to have kids. I don't want kids. I knew that when I was about 18. So when I would say that, I kind of, you know, she kind of had to deal with that. And it was a process of, of grieving because she's always wanted lots of grandkids. And she realised that she wasn't going to have the life as a grandmother that she always wanted. And that's one of the hardest things. Um, so even though it is more accepted now, you still have to make that adjustment to your life is not going to be as you thought it was. Mm. Also, I mean, there's a difference between it being more acceptable on a wide social mm -hmm. level and a personal one-on-one -on -one level with your yeah. family. Yes. Yeah. Well, and yourself as well. 
And yourself. Because, yeah. 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 Because yeah. particularly if you've been raised religious or you've been raised with a message that homosexuality is wrong, which I was, but I'd already come up, came out of the, uh, came out, no pun intended, of the church by the time um, I, I came out of the closet anyway. But, you know, that puts on all different kinds of pressure and it's, yeah. you know, it's, um, and then you do, even nowadays, you know, I do still worry about stuff because it's obviously it's much more acceptable now, but I'm, I've been spat in the street. Um, I've been, yeah, I've like, you know, yeah. I've had people, you know, yell stuff at me if I've been out on a date or whatever. Um, yeah. I've been to like protests and things and we've had stuff yelled at, you know, it's still, it's still something you worry about because you still hear about these things happening. Um, so, and I'm you sure, know, it's, you have I'm to sure kind of come to deal with that as well. And I'm sure that part of your parents too is that they would worry about you as well, you know, like. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. And in the present climate, I mean, it's okay on one level, it's, it's gotten easier, but yeah. we're, we're backsliding really <laughs> well right now. I mean, it's a very slippery, huge, right back where we started from kind of thing. The good news is that an awful lot of people don't want us to go back there. Yeah. yeah. Whereas back in the day, it was the norm in people's minds for there to be this, um, the discrimination and everything else was just the norm. And there was only a small section of the populace who even wanted to think about it, much less protest it. Now, um, there's an awful lot of people who are coming out and saying, no, this is wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't, we don't want to see this go backwards. We want to see this go forward. Yeah. So there's, you know, so in that way, there is some hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some hope. Yeah. So, even in the crazy times we're living in now. Mm-hmm. We got your back, America. I speak for England. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. We need we need as many people to ignore our leaders as possible. <laughs> we don't ignore him. We just laugh at him. Well, that's fine. We and I really hope he does visit the UK because I really want to go to that protest. We, we cry a lot at him. Um, I just, I, I must admit, I just, I can't watch. I can't watch. I try and read transcripts and stuff. Because I just can't. Oh yeah. Well. <laughs> um, I just I want to recommend a video if that's okay. I I saw a, a video essay um, quite recently by Lindsay Ellis, who used to be known as the Nostalgia Chick on Channel Awesome, and she did this video essay talking about uh, rent. And this kind of ties in, obviously, with Angels in America because both deal with they're in set in New York and they deal with the AIDS crisis. But it's a really interesting watch because she uh, the video is entitled. Uh, look pretty and do as little as possible, which is what um, uh, some of the advice was at the time in terms of like dealing dealing with um, speaking about AIDS publicly, like from the government. But she talks about it also in terms of rent itself in that you have all these pretty people moaning about things they really shouldn't moan about because they're moaning about the ridiculous stuff. But no one is really getting angry about the way that people are being treated um, by the government in terms of the AIDS crisis, not getting acknowledgement, not getting help, um, which is what was happening at the time. It was a very angry time. And, mm-hmm. and it, it's, um, I mean, I used to love rent. Like when I was younger, like I used to be like, yeah, down with the man, Bohemia. And now I think, you know, when you're an adult because you watch it and you go, 
oh, that guy who thinks they should pay rent, he's really got a point, you know. I mean, <laughs> he's just trying to he's just trying to make a living. Um, <laughs> when you're on Benny's side, I think that's when you're like, oh, I'm a grown-up. Um, yeah. But that's a really good uh, video. If you just type in, like, Lindsay Ellis Rent, I recommend that. It's really good. And she talks about living in New York and, um, like, Alphabet City at the time, you know, and seeing some of the stuff that was going on. There's also, as long as we're doing that... Um, I ran across a, a mini-series that was done for, I believe it's NBC, just this year, um, When We Rise. I don't know if you saw it or not. I saw um, the ads uh, for it. Yeah. Rachel it, Griffiths. It, it was really, really well done. It's four, it's four parts, or four nights, I guess. Four nights, it's like, uh, how many parts? Six parts. And uh, it, um, it was really, really good. I... Um, it, it takes you through that and on on past that time, and um, it uh, it does a nice job. I would recommend it highly. Oh, uh, I don't think Belize is in the first chapter. Yeah, I didn't know. Like Matt and Mel, did you meet Belize? No, I don't think so because it's only when Pry goes to hospital. I don't. I don't know any of the characters' names. <laughs> I honestly, I did not catch his name until you guys were just talking about yeah, him, and I, I figured out who he was. Jeffrey um, Wright plays a, a flamboyant nurse who no, is... Um, an extract queen. Yeah. Pryor's friend, Lewis's friend, begrudgingly ends up... Pryor's being... ex. They were they were a couple. Ah. And yeah. uh, they... Oh, he ends up being the nurse to Roy Cohn when Roy goes to the to hospital for his mm. liver cancer. Sure. <laughs> Uh, which we haven't yeah. talked about yet. So we should probably talk about Roy um, Cohn. I just want to say Belize is my everything. I love Belize so much. Belize. Uh, yeah. yeah, Belize, Belize is wonderful. I love he, him. He's a character just like Joe's mother that has this strong backbone that doesn't suffer fools lightly and props no. up the characters like Harper and Pryor who are suffering and, and need support. They're both like uh, cheerleaders for those characters, and I have a lot of uh, love for both of them. I think Matt and Mel, you would have seen Jeffrey Wright in it though, because you might have seen him as Mister Lies. Yes, the travel agent. Cash check or credit card? You startled me. Cash check. I remember you. You're from Salt Lake. You sold us the plane tickets when we flew here. What are you doing in Brooklyn? You said you wanted to travel. How thoughtful. Mr. Wise of the International Order. Travel agents. We mobilize the globe. We set people adrift. We are adepts of motion. Acolytes of the flux. Cash, check, or credit card. Name your destination. Antarctica, maybe? I want to see the hole in the ozone. I heard on the radio... Arrange a guided tour. Now? Soon. Maybe soon. I'm not safe here, you see. Weird stuff happens. Like? Well, like you, for instance, just appearing, or... Last week. Well, never mind. People are like planets. You need a thick skin. Joe stays away, and now, well, look, my dreams are talking back to me. It's the price of rootlessness, motion sickness, only cure. Keep moving. I'm undecided. 
I feel that something's going to give. It's 1985, 15 years to the third millennium. Maybe Christ will come again. Or maybe, maybe the troubles will come, and the end will come, and the sky will collapse, and there'll be terrible rain and showers of poison light. Or maybe, maybe my life is really fine. Maybe Joe loves me and I'm only crazy thinking otherwise. Or maybe not. Maybe it's even worse than I know. Maybe I want to know. Maybe I don't. The suspense, Mr. Lies. It's killing me. I suggest a vacation. That was the elevator. Oh, God. I should fix myself. I, you, you have to go. You shouldn't be here. You aren't even real. Call me when you decide. Go. Hey, buddy. The travel agent who appears out of the fridge. <laughs> that sounds yeah. Really good. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah uh, that's that. the other role, the other big role that. Oh, like, so much face Jeffy acting he does in, as as Mr. Lies. All the reaction shots he has. Yeah, he's so when good. Harper is like. So I know there's angels later. Was he an angel or is he just a uh, hallucination? Delusion. Hallucination. Yeah. Although later on he kind of like loses control of the hallucinate. It's quite funny. Like there's some mm-hmm. stuff where you're like, actually, what is he? So, yeah. So Rick Cohn, uh, um, I don't know. You don't think you guys met Ethel, the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg either? In, no, she's in it. There's no, so much too. stuff that's happening in this uh, in this play. Yeah. Um, Roy, I mean, well, six hours. <laughs> so I did a little extra <laughs> research a on on hours. Ethel. Yeah. Because uh, I knew she was she was sentenced to death for being a spy or committing acts of espionage, but I didn't quite know all the details. Mm-hmm. And this play makes a strong case that she's kind of an innocent party, uh, persecuted by Roy Cohn. There's been some articles that I found in from 2015 that cast a lot of doubt on her conviction, her espionage conviction. But I'm surprised that when this play was written, really was there a lot of evidence to suggest that she was railroaded by Roy Cohn? I don't think so. But he's like, this is like a fictionalized version of Roy Cohn, because like the... Um chronology of uh, is that a word yeah of stuff that happens is slightly different um because i don't think he ever even admitted to anyone while he was alive that he was a home you know like homosexual at all um it wasn't known it was just suspected i think i think i read that but he i mean the only true thing is he was a piece of shit i mean (laughs) he's he's a horrible human being uh, and mentor to Donald Trump. I found an article yeah. from The Guardian that talks what? about uh, how Trump and his father, they were sued for discriminating against black people in their apartment yeah. uh, complexes. And Roy Cohn offered some counsel, told Trump that he should tell everyone to go to hell. Then Trump, uh, or his, probably his father, hired Roy Cohn. And one of his first acts as Trump's lawyer was to file a $100 million countersuit. They were, wow. you know, he... um just his whole demeanor and his bluster really rubbed mm-hmm. off on Trump. And then Cohn uh, drafted the prenuptial agreement between Donald Trump and Ivana when they married in 1977. Wow. So, which would have included the reason she can't talk about the marriage now. Oh, and, and filed a lawsuit against the NFL on behalf of Donald Trump because Trump owned a USFL team. So they were uh, compatriots. They were tight. Yeah. 
Yeah. And he's kind of a mentor. And so we can, Gross. we can also blame Roy Cohn for a lot of what Donald Trump, how he comports himself and what he believes and how he operates. We can lay a little bit of that at this guy's feet. Uh, I just want to share what I've read about Ethel Rosenberg and about that whole trial. Uh, mm-hmm. she, even though she doesn't appear in chapter one, she appears later as a ghost that kind of haunts Roy Cohn as he, as he's dying and, and he's, he's having visions of, of her. So this is basically, I'm going to try and summarize what I read and hopefully I'll get all the facts right. But her younger brother, David Greenglass, was a scientist at Los Alamos or working on the Manhattan Project, developing the atomic bomb. And he was caught smuggling papers to Russians, to the Soviets. And he, as part of his deal, put the blame on his brother-in-law, Julius Rosenberg, and on his older sister, Ethel, oh. saying that she typed up his com- his communications, which were then given to the Soviets. Mm. Though it's now suspected, based on transcripts between him and the government, between, I'm talking between David and the government, he never mentioned Ethel having any role in espionage. In fact, said that she didn't. And it was only till like the grand jury trial or whatever that he finally pointed the finger at her. And they think he did that because he was trying to shift blame off of the real person who was typing up the communications, which was his wife. So he blame he put the blame on his older sister to save his wife. Wow. Now that's that's a theory. Um, you know, there's no evidence. Uh, I mean, there's no firm, concrete evidence to say that Ethel uh, was guilty or not guilty. But part of the problem is that she was kind of lambasted in the media as being a very unsympathetic person because she was a communist. She was not feminine in, in the traditional sense. She comported herself like what we would think of a modern woman, but at the time she wasn't subservient to her husband. She wasn't the dutiful housewife. She didn't smile. She didn't seem ladylike. She didn't seem, she wasn't nationalistic. She wasn't pro-American. She was a, she was a communist sympathizer. Doesn't mean that she did anything that they accused her of doing, but it was really easy for the public to say, she did because they didn't like her and Roy Cohn uh, really railroaded her and went after her viciously and championed for the death penalty. And she was eventually electrocuted along with her husband. So now her sons who are now like in their sixties believe that their father was guilty of a conspiracy to commit treason, but perhaps Mm. didn't actually do anything, but they think that his punishment should have been jail time but not execution they don't think her their mother did anything at all wow so yeah crazy and then i read a little like review of angels in america and the way they treat roy and ethel and they think it's in this this reviewer made a case that roy Cohn in angels in america doesn't talk about julius very much he only sees ethel and that's because he hates her because she's a woman and she's outspoken and it's his misogyny that's really like the focus of his wrath. Mm. So, yeah. So we don't see her in uh, chapter one. But later when Roy is admitted to the hospital and he's dying and Belize is taking care of him, Belize sees him arguing with a chair. But he's arguing with uh, Ethel Rosenberg, the ghost of Ethel Rosenberg, played by Meryl Streep. So Meryl Streep plays Joe's mother, Hannah, plays Ethel Rosenberg, and plays the rabbi. Wow. And she plays the angel of somewhere uh, at the end. They will play angels. Uh, no. Uh, Maybe. Yeah. 
There's a sequence uh, again at the end when there are Joe Pryor's in heaven and the actors play different angels. There's a scene in the play as well, which isn't in the miniseries, where uh, much like the play opens with the actress who plays Hannah playing the rabbi, um, it part two, like uh, as in the second evening, you can see the play opens with um, that actress playing the world's oldest Bolshevik. Because the second part is called per, uh, perestroika, which is a Russian term. And so she plays a man in that scene as well. And I think she plays a man. Oh, she also, the actress who plays Hannah would also play um, Roy Cohn's doctor. So the part that James Cromwell plays in the show, that's oh, usually played okay. by the actress who plays uh, Hannah. Sorry, but it sounds like a, a sideshow attraction. The world's oldest Bolshevik. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way they introduce the characters, what they're like, and now... The world's oldest Bolshevik. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. So, Roy Cohn's uh, outlook is that homosexuals have no clout in America, but Roy Cohn has clout. Ergo, he's not a homosexual, even though he has sex with men. He's a, heterose- he, he's a heterosexual who has sex with men, but he's not a homosexual because homosexuals don't have clout. Uh, yeah. Airtight logic, right? Yeah. yeah. I thought that was fascinating and um, mm-hmm. well done. I... Uh... Yeah. It's how he lives with his hypocrisy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think that I don't I I'm not sure that I'm not sure that he even needs to try and live with his hypocrisy. I don't think he has enough conscience for that. Yeah. Um but he, I think it's a it's how he looks at the world. It's it's what makes him um what drives him to get power and use power at every, and have no conscience whatsoever, is that, you know, people without power are, you know, these less than human things. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what he does, as long as he has power, he'll never be considered one of those things, whether it's Jewish, which definitely fell into that category at the time, and we're seeing a huge uptick of anti-Semitism now, so and vandalism against synagogues and stuff. Um, or gay, or whatever else that he might have been hiding. Yeah. Lord only knows. Mm. Roy, you have been seeing me since 1958. Apart from the facelifts, I have treated you for everything from syphilis... From a whore in Dallas? From syphilis to venereal warts in your rectum, which you may have gotten from a whore in Dallas... But it wasn't a female whore. So say it. Roy Cohn, you are... You have had sex with men. Many, many times, Roy. And one of those men, or any number of them, has made you very sick. You have AIDS. AIDS? You know, your problem, Henry, is that you are hung up on words. On labels that you believe they mean what they seem to mean. AIDS, homosexual, gay, lesbian. You think these are names that tell you who someone sleeps with? They don't tell you that. No. No. Like all labels, they tell you one thing, one thing only. Where does an individual so identified fit in the food chain? In the pecking order. 
Not ideology or sexual taste, but something much simpler. Clout. Not who I fuck or who fucks me, but who will pick up the phone when I call, who owes me favors. This is what a label refers to. Now, to someone who does not understand this, homosexual is what I am because I have sex with men. But really, this is wrong. Homosexuals are not men who sleep with other men. Homosexuals are men who, in 15 years of trying, cannot pass a pissant anti-discrimination bill through city council. Homosexuals are men who know nobody and who nobody knows, who have zero clout. Does this sound like me, Henry? No. No. I have clout. Lots. I pick up this phone. I punch 15 numbers. You know who's on the other end? In under five minutes, Henry. The president. Better, Henry. His wife. I'm impressed. I don't want you to be impressed. I want you to understand. This is not sophistry. And this is not hypocrisy. This is reality. I have sex with men, but unlike nearly every other man of whom this is true, I bring the guy I'm screwing to the White House. And President Reagan smiles at us and shakes his hand. Because what I am is defined entirely by who I am. Roy Cohn is not a homosexual. Roy Cohn is a heterosexual man, Henry, who fucks around with guys. Okay, Roy. And what is my diagnosis, Henry? You have AIDS, Roy. No. Henry, no. AIDS is what homosexuals have. I have liver cancer. Did you guys like the scene? I don't think Matt and Mel would have seen it because I think it's in the second or third hour where the prior priors appear. The prior prior walkers. The ancestors appear. Yeah. I I love that scene. I I love it. I I do like that. Um, I like like why. Oh, sorry. Was that Michael Gambon? I'm not sure why I like it. Michael Gambon and Simon Callow, yeah. Yeah. And... I, I love that scene. I like on the um, on the stage version as well because these these two characters would have been played by the actors who played Joe and Roy, um, and the one who's like the medieval ancestor, which is the Michael Gamble one, has like all these black spots all over his arms and hands, almost like the lesions. But it's because he died from the plague, mm-hmm. like the Black Death. Um, mm-hmm. So it's kind of linking in with with prior dying of AIDS with that. But that scene in the play is so funny because particularly with the uh, the the medieval one, he's he just keeps going on about this this. He's just completely clueless. And then you've got the the other one played by Simon Callow, who's a bit more sophisticated and in the know. I just mm-hmm. love it. I just think it's it's really funny. Nice bit of comedy. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's fairly funny in the in the miniseries as well. Yeah, I mean, there's actually, especially the, I think a lot of humor comes from um, Pryor's reaction to all of these things. When you say reaction, are you talking about how he gets an erection when the angel gets closer? <laughs> yeah, Matt, that's look, what I'm talking about. No, <laughs> look, 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 I mean, it's that's... Emma Thompson. Do you not get an erection when Emma Thompson comes by, Matt? Come on. 
awesome. That is a, it's a funny little bit of, uh, <laughs> like angel mythology that they build in this miniseries that humans are sexually attracted to angels that they can't help themselves. They're so, uh, gorgeous and ethereal that when angels get close, human, human males just have erections. Also have angels have eight vaginas. Oh yeah. Science yeah. fact. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. This is, uh, you're learning all about angels today. I, I, no, prefer, I, was... I prefer the Jay and Silent Bob angels that have no genitals. <laughs> and uh, uh, Rick. What is oh. it, Rick? Rick Alan, Rickman. Uh, Alan Rickman. Yeah, he's all disappointed yeah. that he fuck anything. <laughs> like, I'm as anatomically correct as a Kendall. <laughs> <laughs> you stupid humans get to have all the fun. <laughs> I like after the this kind of funny scene as well with the ancestors... You get this like really beautiful moment with um, uh, Pryor and Lewis dancing to uh, Moon River, mm-hmm. which is like one of my favorite songs anyway. But it's so lovely. Oh yeah, and then the ancestor is like, "Oh, now I get why he doesn't have any children." Yeah, <laughs> sodomite. He's a sodomite. He's a sodomite. <laughs> yeah, it's such a lovely um, little moment, though. That oh, I think it is that whole that whole thing is lovely and when of course it crashes it's yeah you know it just pulls you right down but yeah. uh no i was actually talking about um there'd be all this very very dramatic stuff and and you're just on prior's face and he's just so you know <laughs> just staring at all of it and so overwhelmed by all of it and the scene ends all this dramatic stuff and he just goes like what yeah, <laughs> you know, things like that, where he just pulls this huge dramatic thing right down to a human reaction of you know what the hell is going on, basically. So um, a couple other other my quick notes. Uh, I like that Joe calls uh, Joe calls Harper Buddy and says mm-hmm. Buddy Kiss oh, as yeah. a way to desexualize her. Yep. Matt, did, yeah. Matt didn't like that. He was like, "Oh, that's weird." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it was it, it was appropriate for their relationship. Yeah, like, once you realize, it's like, "Oh, that makes sense." Yeah. Uh-huh. Lewis and Joe meet in the bathroom. Uh, they talk in the bathroom, which I disapprove of. No talking in bathrooms. Hmm. <laughs> also, Joe is like not pee shy at all. Like he just. <laughs> There's a sobbing man there. He just at peace. You gotta go. Too. You gotta Fast go. Fast and loud. He, he, Are you allowed he, to he cry pissed. in the in the bathroom? Oh no. Well, so I have to in cry the, in the, the stall. Open. In the stall. Close the door, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't cry don't your, at the sink. Yeah, don't make your <clears throat> your business other people's business. Yeah, that was a very tiny little bathroom. Um, <laughs> bathroom etiquette. <laughs> yes, bathroom <laughs> etiquette. Brought to you by Hooplecast. <laughs> the vision that. Prior in Harper's chair, when he walks down the hallway with windswept hair, it looks like he's in a perfume ad. It's one gave of me, many Wizard of Oz references as well. Gave me, well, um, gave me major. Wonder. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, he gave me major Return to Oz vibes because, yeah, especially uh, yeah, those yeah. arms holding the candles, candlesticks have like. Are, well, they're ooh. from La Bella La Bette, the Jean Cocteau Beauty and the Beast. Like the arms, oh, are they? That's yeah. It's it's a black and white version of Beauty and the Beast, uh, it, directed by Jean Cocteau, but that's. The arms holding the candles is like directly from that. Because it made me think of the villain in uh, Return to Oz who had that room full of heads. 
Oh, Mendy. Yeah. Yeah. And no, but I noticed they're, quite, they're looked... kind of referencing. Oh, sorry, sorry, go on. Sorry, I noticed it looked like he was reading a uh, biography of Cocteau. Like later when he w- woke up, mm-hmm. he had the book oh, on his cool. chest. Yeah. yeah, he did. He did. Yeah. I think they're kind of referencing. They want it to have this real fairy tale feel because, like, at one point in that around that scene, Prior says, "People come and go so." curiously here or something Strangely like here. Right. Wonderland. Mm-hmm. and then later on when he wakes up in towards the end he says um i had I had a dream and i had the most curious dream and you were there and you were there and um and i kept wanting to go home and you know and I, you know there's no place like home and all this kind of thing and it's very wizard of oz so well he uh the angel at one point um is has a long monologue and she ends she starts ending it with lines from the wizard of oz and he starts like quoting them with her which makes her stop Mm. very confusedly and um i don't i didn't write down the lines but they were when he started saying them it was like yeah okay that's from what is that oh that's from wizard of oz that's what that's from um but yeah there's a lot of references to all kinds of um I thought it was interesting that he, this again, Mel and Matt weren't for this, but um, when he's trying to hide from the ancestors, he <laughs> starts singing um, My Fair Lady. Yes. <laughs> which I thought was was an interesting <laughs> choice. Um, all I want is a room somewhere. Um, yeah, there's a lot of... of Musical and literary references by Pryor. um, When he's putting uh, his um, makeup on. Yeah, I was going to say, when he's putting his makeup on, he goes, ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille, which uh, Matt and Mel, if you would go see Sunset Boulevard, you would know what that was. (laughs) You have to see Sunset Boulevard, even though, you know, maybe Twin Peaks The Return sent you to it as well. You can now imagine that Angels in America sent you to it instead. All right. Yeah, you can go, yay! Sunset Boulevard's amazing. That made me feel better about it. He looks a lot more in makeup. He looks so much like Joan Crawford, but of course, Sunset Boulevard is Gloria Swanson. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was laughing I thought, at my no. Go ahead. What? What were you laughing at? No, I was laughing at my my notes. Where I wrote threshold of revelation too long. Don't read version. You're sick. Your husband's a homo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, there were some interesting lines that uh, were happening. Um, I didn't. I just copied down a couple of them. Okay. When Roy is saying to Joe, "Do you want to be nice or do you want to be effective?" Mm-hmm. I thought that was. I mean, he took it to a whole new level in real life. But there are some times when you kind of look around and say, "Hmm, that's not such terrible advice," but uh, not in terms of what Roy Cohn would do. Oh, I would say then, though, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. Aww. That's what I live by. Aww. Yeah. Yeah, there's a difference between being... That's why I'm not very important. (laughs) No. What I thought was interesting was that he wasn't saying important, and he wasn't saying famous or this or that. He was saying Mm -hmm. effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, you know, there are are times when, yeah, it's great to be nice, but at the same time, uh, what's the... What's the saying? Um... Nice women don't make history or something like that. It's, you know, because women are are trained to be nice mm-hmm. all the time. And uh, 
and very often it can be you know used to just walk all over us um fuck politeness mm-hmm. or as yeah. patrick swayze says in roadhouse be nice until it's time to not be nice <laughs> true true no. words of sultan so, so nice <laughs> nice mormon boy joe is in the wrong profession because he is with malevolent roy Cohn getting involved in politics and there's this really like awful slash great scene in chapter two where Roy's talking about politics with Joe and he's like, it's bowel movements and red blood meat. Like, ugh. Oh, there's another amazing Gross. speech I love, which is but true. <laughs> when is it when they talk about change that I like, that's another speech that really gets to me where they talk, I think it's, it's Harper. I can't remember who Harper's talking to. And they talk about what changes and oh. she makes the, the comparison that it's like, when you oh. go through change, it's God cutting you open with a oh, dirty yeah. nail and your intestines all fall out and become all tangled. And then he's basically, and then you have to pick them up and stuff them back in yourself and try and keep the wound closed, but nothing's the same. It's something like that. It's put much better yeah. than I just said. Well, yeah, it's such you know, a good analogy yeah. for change. I was like, yeah, that exactly. exactly. She's at the Mormon visitor center and the diorama comes to life. And the, that's it. And it's Robin, the, Robert uh, Weigert, who played Calamity Jane in Deadwood, uh, plays the pioneer woman who tells oh, her, you know, that it's, yeah, yeah, that it's, oh. that it's, uh, changes God putting his hand into you and rearranging the parts and then leaving you to do the stitching. Yeah. I posted that clip in the, uh, Hooplecast Facebook. Uh, I just want to share this, this line from, uh, Joe's mother where she's talking to the, uh, homeless woman she goes i asked the driver was this brooklyn and he nodded yes but he was from one of those foreign countries where they think it's good mm-hmm. manners to nod at everything even if you have no idea what it is you're nodding at in truth i, sp- mm-hmm. I think he spoke no english at all <laughs> i have a line of hers as well that's from a little later that i <laughs> that was so appropriate when she's talking to the um the policeman who uh who's who called to because they found um uh, um, Har- Harper, Harper. Oh yeah, yeah, chewing down a tree like a bee. Right. <laughs> and Joe's mother says she's not insane; she's just peculiar. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so Midwest. Sorry. Yes, she's such so an mid- old lady. Like this is how an old lady would talk. She also gets an angel orgasm later. What? Yeah, she does. Oh, does she? she, I she has, yeah, she well, and she Emma has, Thompson get she has on. sex with the angel. Yeah, yeah. her and Emma, Meryl Streep and Emma Thompson sex scene. She's got such a great arc oh. because initially she seems so distant from her son and, and unwilling to listen to his confession, uh, kind of like embarrassed for him, disappointed in him. But then she comes to New York because Har- Harper has disappeared. You know, she climbs through the refrigerator. And so she go- comes to New York to look for Harper, but then ends up being like her confidant and help her. And then she's actually incredibly open minded as well. Yes. When she meets Pryor, she doesn't shun him, and she's actually really compassionate to him in terms of his illness. She doesn't shun him because he's, you know, a homosexual, and she doesn't really have any, you know, experience with them and stuff. And she's she's incredibly um, compassionate to him, and ends up, you know, they end up becoming good friends. Um, I think it's it's really lovely. I've got a quote that's just popped into my head, which is when between Harper and Pryor in the hallucination. And I think um, uh, I think Har- uh, Pryor says that he's a homosexual, and she says, um, "I'm a Mormon. We don't believe in homosexuals." And he's like, "Oh, well, we don't believe in Mormons." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
big. La- yeah, I bet that, that gets a big good. laugh in the theater. Yeah. yeah. What does that mean? They don't believe in them. Like they don't believe they exist. Like they're faking. What Mormons? Well, they like the Book of Mormon musical says you can just turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. like, oh, you feel gay? Just turn you, it off. You trying to pick my end song for me? Oh, I'm <laughs> turn sorry. Turn it off. Turn no, it I, off like light I, switch. Just go. <laughs> no, oddly, I, I didn't think of putting any Book of Mormon songs at the end of the episode. <laughs> but now you will. Maybe. We'll see. There's various religions, though, that do think that... Um, it's a lifestyle choice? You know, you could choose not to be gay if you really want to. Why? I've never understood, since that would mean that you can also choose not to be heterosexual if you want to. Yeah. And that's, most that's people... sound logic right there, Carol. Yeah, and most people don't really feel that way if they're straight, that they could just kind of choose to be gay. So I always figure that the people who feel that way must actually feel like their sexuality is pretty fluid, since they think other people can choose. Mm -hmm. They must say that. Yeah, but it just—I'm just following a line of logic here, you know. Yeah. (laughs) It. I, I've always, yeah, I've always found that really interesting. It's like, okay, you think other people can choose what their sexuality can be. That must, and most people judge others by themselves. That must mean that you kind of feel like you've you got a little choose. bit of gay in you. Yeah, just maybe. I think people confuse choice with realization. Like, mm-hmm. you, you know, you don't, you may not know right away that you're gay because obviously you have to come into your sexuality as a person so it might take you a while to realize that you're gay you know (laughs) or to realize that oh i'm attracted to this you know this person or that person or whatever so yeah it's realization. I never realized i was bisexual i'm just greedy i was just like (laughs) i want other men i want other women I just realized one day, oh, I, I, I really fancy Ava Green. Maybe I'm gay. Oh, but David Tennant, poor. Oh, no, maybe I'm straight. <laughs> oh, but Ava Green, maybe I'm gay. Oh, I guess I'm in the middle. <laughs> so it was basically that. I think we ought to pray. Ask God for help. Ask him together. God won't talk to me. I have to make up people to talk to me. You have to keep asking. I forgot the question. Oh, yeah. God, is my husband a oh, whole... Stop it! Stop it! I'm warning you! Does it make any difference that I might be one thing deep within? No matter how wrong or ugly that thing is, so long as I have fought with everything I have to kill it. What do you want from me? What do you want from me, Harper, more than that? For God's sake, there's nothing left. I'm a shell. There's nothing left to kill. As long as my behavior is what I know it has to be, decent, correct, that alone in the eyes of God. No, no, not that. That's Utah talk, Mormon talk. I hate it, Joe. Tell me. Say it. All I will say is that I'm a very good man who has worked very hard to become good, and you want to destroy that. You want to destroy me, but I'm not going to let you do that. I'm going to have a baby. Liar. You liar. A baby born addicted to pills. A baby who does not dream, but who hallucinates, who stares up at us with 
big mirror eyes and who does not know who we are. Are you really? No. Yes. No. Yes. Get away from me. Now we both have a secret. Nearly forgot that we got feedback from Harold. And this is after I messaged him this morning or last night. And I was like, where's your feedback, Harold? Because <laughs> I demand it. I expect it and demand it. Uh, and he's it all too, such a champ. You know, <laughs> he probably thinks that we take him for granted. We probably do. We shouldn't because he's you, such a wonderful no, contributor to take him for our granted. podcast. Never. I'm speaking for the podcast, and it's not even my podcast, but we love you, Harold. Yeah. (laughs) Speak for yourself, Matt. We would never take Harold for granted. I was saying he might think that we do. (laughs) Okay. But we we don't. We we love Harold, and we appreciate whenever he sends in feedback or as a guest on our podcast. Okay. I I will put my outrage away. He sends me this feedback, and I read through some of it, but his... Subject is last minute rushed feedback. My apologies in advance if too wordy, bad grammar, etc. And it's like the most eloquently stated feedback. <laughs> <laughs> he is uh, always so eloquent, though. <laughs> uh, Mel, why don't you take this one? Okay. Okay. Cool. So for Angels in America, he says, Hello, all you hoopleheads and guests with the goish names. <laughs> Eric. Eric, it's a Jewish name. <laughs> I guess that Carol and I are the only ones old enough to have been around in the 80s when the AIDS crisis what? occurred. <laughs> what? What? I, I was. Well, I was, I was, but I, I was wasn't quite old young. En- I wasn't old enough to be uh, cognizant of... Because you're a baby. Well, yeah, I wasn't either. I was, yeah. a, I was a baby. I do remember, sorry to interrupt your feedback, Harold. I do remember the really creepy ads we had on British um, television, which I don't know if you guys got, which was narrated by John Hurt. I'll try and see if I can find it. And it was um, a close-up of, like, a a piece of um, stone being um, chipped into. And then you realize it's a gravestone being being carved. And it just says, AIDS. And it was, like, narrated by John Hurt. And it was terrifying. Whoa. I remember that. Yeah, it's awful. I'm going to try and find it. I remember them talking about it in school and stuff. I remember talking about AIDS in school. Like, I I remember it was a thing, but... Yeah. When we talked about life stories, families in crisis, I remember that uh, mentioning that I watched w- the one of the AIDS related one. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was still a big thing. Like even in the early '90s, it was a huge thing. Blood Brothers, the Joey DePaulo story, <laughs> based on a true story of 13 year old Joey DePaulo who has to deal with the public discovering he has AIDS. I remember mm-hmm. watching that in middle school. Yeah. So. I- no, yeah. oh, sorry, Carol, go ahead. No, so, Harold, what does Harold have to say? Yes, Harold uh, says, I guess that Carol and I are the only ones old enough to have been around the 80s when the AIDS crisis occurred and was ignored by the Reagan administration. Thanks, Reagan. As a, <laughs> as a straight man who never injected drugs nor got a blood transfusion, it only affected me secondhand through people I knew and by reading alternative newspapers like The Village Voice. But I know enough to know that when Angels in America opened, it was a major cultural event, at least in places like The Village Voice, which treated the opening of the New York production like a once-in-a-generation earthquaking event. <laughs> okay. I, never saw, I never saw it then, nor had I ever seen this HBO Mike Nichols ad- adaptation until now, and I have only seen the first two hours so far. 
Obviously, this is a big production with big stars and a big-time director, a prestige... (laughs) uses a lot of caps here. A prestige (laughs) project that is designed to win awards. I'm curious about how it differs from the stage production. Hopefully, someone on your podcast will be able to explain the changes that were made, Claire. That's why we have Claire. That's why I'm here. I have my uses. As for the two hours that I've seen so far, I don't have any criticisms. It's a dense work with a lot of big ideas, and it is trying to impress us with how important it is. (laughs) But then again, you know what? (laughs) You know what? It is important. A lot of people died unnecessarily because the government dragged its feet and did not put enough resources into HIV research. A lot of people felt forced to live their lives in the closet. A lot of people are screwed up because of their self-hatred or their religious beliefs. And a lot of people in positions of power are just as screwed up as everybody else. I'm not going to shit on anything that addresses these issues in a thoughtful and interesting way. One bit of dissonance, however, is that this was a made-for-TV production made in the mid-2000s based on a play from the early 90s about events occurring in the (laughs) mid-80s. And now we are watching it in 2017. So it loses a lot of its urgency in some respects. Though in other respects, it still seems timely. Roy Cohn is now remembered as a mentor to Donald Trump, and people like him are back in power. Also, you've got to realize that when this show was written, AIDS was still pretty much a death sentence. I feel like this show was a major influence on everything that came after it, in the way that it mixes real-life, publicly known figures with fictional characters, addresses real-life issues, and gets meta. Uh, Later works have drawn on this, and it is hard to go back with modern eyes and forget how groundbreaking this all was. A few random thoughts. I don't know how well you guys know or remember Roy Cohn, who first became famous in the 50s working for Senator Joe McCarthy to find the communists that they claimed were ingrained in the government. But in the 80s, he was undergoing a renaissance as a big-time New York City lawyer and power broker and was the subject of lots of profile pieces in magazines. Al Pacino's portrayal of him seems nothing like the actual Roy Cohn, but it is so marvelous that who cares? <laughs> I loved how momentarily he dropped into his uh, Godfather. I loved how he momentarily dropped into his Godfather character for a moment during the second hour. If you didn't catch it, the hallway with the faces and arms holding lamps was a reference to Jean Cocteau's film uh, version of Beauty and the Beast. Both Harper and Pryor were reading Francis Stieg Muller's biography of Cocteau before falling asleep. We did mention that. <laughs> yeah, the smart people on this podcast mentioned yeah. it. <laughs> it was weird. It was weird to go to the first hour without seeing Emma Thompson or uh, Meryl Streep. Thompson. Was, sorry, Emma. <laughs> it was weird Thompson. to. It was weird to see, go to the first. Oh, fuck. It was. <laughs> It was weird to go to the first hour without seeing Emma Thompson or Meryl Streep. It was even weirder to hear Emma, Emma Thompson with a New York uh, outer borough accent. Well, her attempt at a yeah. New York outer borough accent. Yeah, yeah. really. Uh, I messaged really? Harold and I said, actually, you know, you did see Meryl Streep in the first hour. She's the first character you saw. She played the rabbi. And he says, oh, I, uh, I thought that rabbi did not look kosher. amazing (laughs) one of the things that distinguished this work from the usual awards bait movies is that it didn't treat the gay characters as a bunch of saints or archetypes Roy Cohn, Lewis, and Joe were all shits (laughs) each in their own individual way as people are in real life 
One little thing that brought me back to the mid-80s was when, in the second hour, a nurse walks into Pryor's hospital room holding a surgical mask to her face. I took a class during that time that was taught by a medical doctor who was not convinced that AIDS could only be transmitted by blood. He was not the only one. People with AIDS were often treated like they had the plague, even by medical professionals. Very true. Yeah. Yeah. The great work begins. The messenger has arrived. We don't have any original segments on this podcast. We even borrowed the the news segment from the Defenders podcast when she <gasps> Claire opens up with Marvel news. We talk about HBO Network news, so I even stole that. I stole the sixty second plot summaries, and of course, I stole the ratings. So we rate things on this podcast. So on a scale of one to ten, with the quip you rating as you do, Claire, you're our guest. Why don't you go ah. first? Uh, and it's up to you if you want to rate just the first hour or the entire thing or the play and the experience. Like I'll rate the entire thing. Okay. Um, I I really enjoy it. I don't think it's the most perfect, amazing thing ever written. Um, there are bits that definitely uh, touch a nerve with me in terms of subjects like mental illness, um, obviously the personally and um, LGBTQ rights. Um, so yeah bits touch nerve it's a period of history that i'm kind of interested in anyway um so i i like it from that point of view also some of the the um uh the stuff it talks about about religion i find interesting kind of deconstructing certain religious things um but it's not perfect i do prefer some of the performances in the stage play um but I'm, I mean, as an overall thing, I'm going to give it like an 8.5 out of 10 Belize glitter clouds. <laughs> Mel? No, I'm not ready yet. Okay. Matt, not ready? I liked it. Uh, I liked all the characters. I want to learn more about them. I just didn't have time. Uh, I didn't really ever hear of this thing before. Uh, maybe the name sounded familiar, but I had no idea what it was about. So, uh. Uh, I'm pretty interested in that, uh, where the story's going. I'll probably check it out. We'll probably watch it, I imagine. Mm -hmm. Finish it up. Yep. Um, so, uh, I'll give it, a 8 out of 10 blowjob pregnancies. <laughs> uh, I'll go next. I really liked, uh, Angels in America. I said that when I sat down to watch just part one, I ended up, or chapter one, rather, I ended up watching all of part one and then all of part two. Because there's it has a, a real pull to it, and I wanted to see where the characters were, how they were going to uh, end up, what their fates were going to be, and I like all the dimensions of a lot, all the characters, particularly Joe's mother, who you know initially comes across perhaps as a bigoted Mormon old lady, but then ends up having like this such a strong backbone that she props up all these 
suffering people around her and really just this is one of the Meryl Streep's best performances and I love her as Ethel Rosenberg as well though I'm just I'm a little just unsettled by treating Ethel Rosenberg as a possible sympathetic character when we don't know if what she was guilty of or not especially when the play was written I'm a little like I don't know about this um but Oh, and Al Pacino, I think, I have a tough time with Al Pacino. Like, he kind of overacts. Like, (laughs) he just seems like he's playing Al Pacino and not, like, I don't know. I think he's like one of the weaker parts of of the miniseries. That and Emma Thompson's awful accent. But a lot of the, I would say, other than Meryl Streep, the the second tier actors, like Justin Kirk and Ben Shankman. Shankman? Shankman? Please, Shank- Lewis. I mean, I thought, uh, Shank- he hasn't done a lot. Um, maybe he's mostly a stage actor. And Jeffrey Wright is just fantastic in all of his various roles, Mr. Lies and as Belize. There's just so much happening. There's like, this is a really dense work, but I'm not sure it all hangs together. I'm not sure that the angel mm-hmm. stuff is the best part of it. So I'm going to give it a 9.25 out of 10. Fist, we fistfuls of volume. <laughs> okay, Carol. Um, I also have very mixed feelings about it in many ways. Um, it's it's so ambitious that I I have to give points just for the ambition and what Harold was saying about how it was um, how groundbreaking it was and everything at the time uh, that it was first done. Um, is very, very true. I remember it very clearly. And at the same time, when it came out, it it had, people had mixed emotions about it then. And I remembered that when I was watching it the fir- this the first time and understood those mixed emotions. Um, a lot of what you're, you were saying, Matt, where, you know, making everything fit together, angels and, and so many hallucinations and, and it's like everybody's hallucinating. Um, and in this case, I absolutely agree with you about Al Pacino. I there was a point in there where I thought he was going to go like yeehaw, ooha, or whatever it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> from that other yeah. one, um, I kind of felt like he was playing that character all over again. Um, and um, Emma Thompson's accent did dis- <laughs> distract and detract, but um, but I. I really appreciated the ambition. I appreciated, I mean, it was interesting, you know, they, they definitely, they batted for the fences, you know, they, they put everything into it and, um, you know, you, you usually fall flat on your face when you try and do that. But, uh, I, I think they did get there and, and from a personal point of view, that period of time, I still have a really hard time talking about it all these years later. Um, because just like Harold, I mean, I straight female. Um, it was secondhand, but it was secondhand to so many people I knew that I lost count. Mm. I don't, I have not been able to count all the people I lost during that time. Um, anytime you would see an old friend you hadn't seen for a little while. There were the pleasantries, and you always knew that you'd get to the point of, who have you heard died? Mm-hmm. And then there would be the back and forth. Did you know so-and-so? He was, you know, he was, like, at 
the theater, you know, at this theater the same year you were, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's he's gone. Oh, I heard about so-and-so. Did you know him? Yeah. Yeah. He's gone, too? Yeah. And, um, and that was every conversation. And um, so this visceral, the fact that this is so visceral, I think is really, I have to give it credit. I'm going to give it 9 out of 10. Um, oh, crap. What was I going to give it? 9 out of 10. Um, <clears throat> HIV cocktails that weren't working too well till AZT came along. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about being so long-winded. No, no, that's it's okay. Cool. It's great. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm still like, wow. I'm sorry, Carol. <laughs> yeah. No, that's okay. I. Yeah. I'm sorry. I get. No, kinda... that's that's fine. I just, you know, I. I. You blow us away. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Often you do. <laughs> <laughs> I just. It. It's. It's something that still haunts me. Yeah. Oh. Every. <laughs> A while ago, a long while ago, I was reading something and people were talking about how, you know, all these different people that they'd known since they were kids and stuff. And I was like, how come I only have like two or three people that I've known since I was a kid? Mm. And I realized everybody else had died. Mm. That generation, we lost a whole generation of really talented, awesome people. Sorry. No. I'm going to mute now. Don't be don't be sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. Uh yeah, I, I yeah, I really liked this. Like I liked it like I was saying earlier, I, I liked it enough to keep watching it. And I don't think I can say a lot uh that about every show we've been watching. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> um <laughs> K Street. Um <laughs> so yeah, I'm going to give it an 8.5 out of 10 alternate diagnosis facts. <laughs> okay. Well, Claire, thank you for joining us on this. Oh, you're welcome. Sorry, I'm just, I'm, I'm just having a little cry now. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you made me cry, Carol. <laughs> I'm giving you big hugs, hugs through Skype. Thank mm. you. Thanks. I'm, I'm sorry, guys. That's no, no, okay. Don't well, be I don't sorry. Know why you're apologizing sorry, because you're well, just... you know. Getting all emotional. You're allowed to cry. Uh, it's it okay. makes for good fucking podcasting. <laughs> it shows. It shows that you're a human. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Or a very, very, very good replicant. <laughs> <laughs> excellent replicant. Top yeah. notch. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad to be excellent at something. Yeah. <laughs> Even being a replicant. And I sent you hugs through Skype. I wish I could give you a real hug. I've sent you a Skype. Thanks. Claire, where can Uh, people find you on the internet? Can you uh, promote some things for us? Everywhere. I'm everywhere. Uh, (laughs) uh, I am. Glory to. I I am the ghost in the machine. Uh, I am on a podcast called Calavici Fashion Cast, maybe the most niche podcast on the internet. We talk about the fashions of the show Quantum Leap. Yes, we have a podcast <laughs> just about that, and it's amazing, and I love it. Um, that's Calavici Fashion Cast. Uh, I am also on the Defenders podcast with Matt and Mel. When they can uh, bother to show we, up. If they can, 
just me and our guests tomorrow. None of my co-hosts can be bothered. Uh, and then Tammy, my other co-host, faking a hurricane in Florida, just to get oh. out recording, whatever. Oh. Um, so that's the Defenders podcast, and we discuss the Marvel Netflix show, so Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Iron Fist, and we do lots of interviews uh, with the behind-the-scenes people who I like to champion because they are the ones that uh, make the show what it is as much as the actors. So yay for behind-the-scenes people. Um, and you can find me on Etsy at Myafire Prince and pretty much anywhere else on the internet as Myafire. And Claire also did Carnicast with Matt and Mel. Oh, and I did Carnicast with Matt and Mel. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, where we talked about Carnival. Carnival. I also did Intro to X, an X-Files podcast that I forgot about as well. Where we covered <laughs> Blocked X-Files it out, right? <laughs> I'm blocking out the X-Files since I, they've released photos of that they're actually filming the next series, which I'm in denial about. Well, be like getting the band back together. Uh, why? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you. Everything Sorry. that I ever do. <laughs> you may also hear Claire on our reoccurring Timothy Oliphant-themed oh, yeah. <laughs> commentary tracks. My favorite thing, doing commentaries on Timothy Oliphant films. That's even more niche than Quantum <laughs> It certainly <fashion>. is. <laughs> yeah. And we'll we will be, be doing an, uh, one again soon, I think. Yeah, uh, there'll be another we, one coming out uh, next month. Yeah. We haven't, we haven't recorded it yet, but that'll be fun, too. So, <laughs> Also, maybe uh, you'll hear me on mine and Matt's future Lance Henriksen podcast. <laughs> yeah, we talked about that Mel's, this morning. <laughs> mine and Mel's future Littler's Hobo podcast. Yeah, these things right. will happen one day. Oh, forgot to mention something. What? What we're going to be discussing next time on... Hooplecast. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, we will be covering the pilot of a television series called Deadwood. <laughs> I've never and, even heard of it. And then the pilot of another series called Rome. Which is one of the few I've actually watched. I had watched this one and I've watched Rome. Well, it'll be fun to revisit Deadwood, especially having covered the entire series on the podcast, to kind of get another look at the pilot and just revisit old friends. And see how far, you know, they've come, or in this case, regressed. Like, because I don't remember liking Al Swearingen very much in uh, the pilot. No, <laughs> did not like him at all in the pilot. But we grew to love him. <laughs> Although and he regressed there at the end. Sometimes you just have to murder a whore to protect your other whore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's you want to be nice or effective. Find us at hooplecast.com. Send in mail to uh, hooplecast at gmail.com. Go on Facebook. Find us there. Follow us on Twitter at hooplecast. Claire, it's tradition on hooplecast to allow the guest to give our signature sign off, which is mm-hmm. a hearty fuck you. Do you want to give us your best fuck you? Fuck you. <laughs> Nicely done. Nicely done. Thanks. I can tell I've had practice. <laughs> Felt the malevolent intent.
Waymaker, you heartbreaker. 